الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى وسلاما على عباده الذين استفى اما بعد اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ذلك الكتاب لا ريب فيه هدى للمتقين سبحان ربك رب العزه اما يصفون وسلاما على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم so we mentioned yesterday after fajr that the next four talks after fajr will be based on the four sources of our deen and the aspects of knowledge and scholarship in each of these four sources so today we discuss the first and the primary source of our deen which is the quran al kareem the sacred text of revelation the words of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he has sent to us and believe it or not we live in an, a time we live in an age in which this very quran is under attack both from within and from without we live in an age of progressive islam a time of liberal islam a time of reformers who wish to reform this deen who wish to reinterpret this book and change this deen to fit themselves there was a time when people used to want to change themselves to adapt themselves for the deen today we live in this time where people wish to adapt the book interpret the book adapt the deen and change it in a way that fits them so it means that for the young man or the middle aged man it is necessary for him to understand how he can approach the quran how he can gain knowledge of the quran and what is true scholarship in the quran so he can uh, remain guided and he can safeguard himself from going astray the whole purpose of quran of al-fatihah reading the quran was for our hidayah was for our guidance allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the quran al-kareem rabbana allazi a'ta kull shay'in khalqahu thumma hada that our lord is that being that entity that 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 gave each and everything its creation that created everything but he simply didn't just create it and leave it as it is thumma hada but then he made uh, created its hidayah he gave a means for that creation to understand how to function and you look at this this is not just in the human realm this is also in the animal world animals are given an instinct as allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created them but he also created a hidayah for them that is why when the newborn chick when she is hatched from the egg she already knows how to walk around how to breathe and how to eat that's why your human baby when she is born from the womb in the womb she never used to cry but allah taala gave her this hidayah this instinct this fitra this human nature this basic it programming that the baby knows that whenever he or she needs something when she needs to be changed when she needs to be shifted when she needs to be fed all she has to do is cry so allah subhanahu not only did he create everything but he created the hidayah or the guidance for everything the human beings humanity is the greatest creation of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we are what we call in arabic the ashraf al makhluqat the most honored the most exalted creation of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so for that creation he then created a special means of hidayah known as wahi which is sacred revelation and the greatest and the final and the most complete form of revelation is the quran al kareem now when we approach knowledge because we're going to be talking in these sessions on how to get the knowledge of Quran of sunnah of fiqh and of tazkiyah we should know that there are three means or three tools or three zara'i that a person has for husul al-ilm to acquire and attain knowledge the first is what they call the ahfas al-khamsa his or her five senses sight smell 
hearing, touch, and taste. This is the first means through which a person acquires knowledge of this world, your sensory perception, your five senses. But know that these five senses, they can sometimes deceive you. They can sometimes be wrong. They can sometimes be misleading. They can sometimes be incorrect. They are deficient. They are not perfect means to knowledge. For example, if you were standing at a far distance from a mountain, so to your eye, that mountain appears small. That's a separate thing. Using your brain, you know that it's, it's not really small. It's bigger than it looks. The moon is much bigger than it looks. But in reality, if you were to confine yourself just to your five senses or just to the sense of sight, then you wouldn't imagine that the moon is only this big and that mountain is only this high. So the five senses that you have can deceive you. Many times a person can be deceived by his sight, smell, hearing, or taste. The second means of knowledge is our akum, is our rational intellect, is our brain. Allah endowed human beings, perhaps more so than all other creation, with a rational ability, the ability to reflect, ponder, think, to process thoughts. But also, this uncle, this intellect, can also lead you astray. In fact, all the terrible things that go on in this world today are all because of the uncle. It's all because human beings' intellects have led them astray. Whether it led them to create the atom bomb, whether it led them to make the decision to drop it on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, whether it led them to invent the false ideologies of communism and socialism, whether it led them to invent any type of false way of human life, any ism, all of these things are actually nothing other than a product of the human intellect. So much of the suffering, much of the savagery, much of the butchery that goes on in the world today is a product of human beings who had ideas, who had ideologies, and some of them viciously tried to propagate their views on earth. So it shows you that a human being's intellect can also lead him astray. Not just in violent matters, but also in cultural matters, in ways of life. In America, you have this debate these days of same-sex marriage. So this whole concept of same-sex marriage being something that should be permissible, something that should be acceptable, this whole concept is a product of human beings' minds. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of reflecting. It's an outlook on life. So if a human being lets his intellect go unrestricted, he doesn't rein it in, then you can see in front of you with the few examples I gave, what type of nata'ij, what type of results, what type of consequences his intellect may lead him. Truly his akul knows no bounds. So there are three types of acquiring, three ways of acquiring knowledge. The first were the five senses. The second was the akul or the intellect. And the third and the most utmost and the highest way is wahi, is divine revelation that Allah actually sent wahi to us to save us from our uncle, to curb our intellect, to manage our intellect, to lay down the hudud, the borders for which we can live our life, be it our individual lives, our family lives, our communal lives, our societal lives, our political lives, our lives as a global citizen, the Sharia defines each and every way in which you have to live. Or sorry, I should rather say wahi, revelation, defines each and every way you have to live. So the purpose of wahi, which Allah said in Quran, قُلْ اللَّهِ هُوَ الْهُدَى That know that the guidance of Allah, the hidayah that from Allah, هُوَ الْهُدَى That alone is true guidance. So if you want to live a life, a guided life, a rightly guided life, an informed life, an enlightened life, 
So the way to be enlightened in this world, there is no other form of enlightenment, no other form of intellectual fulfillment, no other form of spiritual upliftment other than the hidayah that is contained in this wahi and this revelation of the Qur'an al-Kareem. Qul in hudallahi huwal huda Say that verily the hidayah that Allah SWT sends, that alone is true hidayah and that alone is true guidance. Another place Allah SWT then openly mentioned the purpose of revealing the Qur'an. So that Allah by way of this book, could take people out from darkness and bring them into light. But at the same time, Allah mentioned elsewhere in the Qur'an that there will be some people who will be guided by this book and there will be some people that this book will be a means for them to go astray. And you find that example in the time of the Prophet Some ayah, some verse would be revealed and instead of letting it impact upon their hearts, there was some kufar amongst the Quraysh who would respond and say, this is just magic, this is just fraud, this is just deception. They would say these things in response to the wahi that was being uh, revealed in front of them or they would hear about it secondhand. So from that time until now, it's just, if, and it's only logical to understand that if people could be led astray in the presence of the Prophet Muhammad while witnessing wahi, while witnessing revelation being revealed unto him, while listening to the revelation being recited from his tongue, and still they can be led astray, it's only easy to understand that there, there will be, always be people from that time until the Day of Judgment that because their hearts are hardened or because they are blinded by their intellect or because they're actually choosing to follow their own whims and desires, they may themselves be led astray by this Qur'an. So before I, I mention a little bit, I want to explain a couple of things about the Qur'an, a couple of basic things about Revelation that we should all know. The first thing is that because this is the month of Ramadan, there's a special nisbah, a special relationship with the Qur'an. And I recited to you a few days before this ayah, and you must have heard it many times, that this is the month in which the Qur'an was revealed. But what does that mean? Because all of us know historically, Allah SWT revealed the Qur'an to the Prophet Muhammad SAW gradually, over a period of time, over 20 plus years. So know that the Qur'an was actually revealed twice. The first time the Qur'an was revealed was from the Lohi Mahfuz until the lowest of the seven heavens. That process was instantaneous. The entire Qur'an was descended from the Lohi Mahfuz, which is, uh, which is what you would call the primordial tablet, if you will, or the master tablet that is in the presence of Allah SWT. It was rele- revealed from that down to the seventh heaven. And then from there, Sayyidina Jibreel Islam, at the command of Allah SWT, the angel Jibreel used to bring portions of it over time to the Prophet Muhammad And that process took over 20 years. So the first process in which the Qur'an was revealed instantaneously, that was when the Qur'an was revealed on Laylatul Qadr. And that is known in Arabic as Inzal. And that process, and hence the ayah unzila fiha Qur'an, and then that process in which the Qur'an was gradually revealed to humanity, that is known as tanzil, uh, a gradual form of revelation. So sometimes someone might ask, well, why did Al-Fantala reveal it gradually? Why did it take over 20 plus years? So Imam al-Razi, rahimahullah, is one of the famous professors of the Qur'an. He has given in his tafsir four reasons why Al-Fantala revealed the Qur'an gradually, tadrijan, bit by bit over time. The first reason he gives was that Prophet Muhammad was ummi was unlettered. 
And because he was unlettered, Imam Marazi said that it would have been uh, a miracle in of itself for Paul for to have had the whole Quran revealed unto him, for him to zabat it, for him to memorize it all instantaneously, and then reveal all of that or recite all of that because he's immediately, whenever the verses were revealed on the Prophet, he was mukallaf, he was morally responsible to transmit that revelation immediately. It would have been too much for him to re- receive it all and have to transmit that entire text immediately. The second reason Imam al-Rasiyahimullah gives is that whenever a verse was revealed, the hukum of the sharia, the ruling of that verse became mandatory upon the people. So because Allah was revealing this religion for the first time, if he had revealed the entire Qur'an or bestowed the entire Qur'an on the Prophet's heart and tongue instantaneously, that all those ahkam would have been made mandatory amongst the Sahaba. Rather, Allah knew that he had to make them change gradually. All of you know there are famous examples like this, the example of nikah, the example of uh, alcohol, drinking liquor and intoxicants. There are some things in the Qur'an that were revealed gradually. The hukum came in the Sharia gradually. So that's the second reason Imam al-Azhar says that the Sahaba... Now, somebody using the akal. Let me give you an example how the akal can lead you astray. Because the akal will tell you that, well, the Sahaba were much better than us. And if you're saying that the reason the Qur'an was revealed over 20 years was because the Sahaba needed to follow those rulings gradually, so then I also should get at least 20 years to follow Islam. Why is it that I have to, from the second I become a mature adult, the entire Qur'an is mandatory upon me, I'm mukallaf of all the rulings. And the Sahaba, they had 20 plus years. For the Sahaba, alcohol was uh, forbidden to them in three stages. And for me, I entered the scene of Islam and it's forbidden for me instantaneously. Doesn't the uncle say that? Can anybody give me an answer from your uncle? Not from maybe what you heard from a scholar or in the Hadith. Give me an answer purely just from your uncle. A rational answer to this rational question. <coughs> I'm honestly asking you. It's not that easy. Right? So first reflect on the question. It will show you that that person who lets his uncle go free, you can sit there and think about all types of things about Islam. In fact, and that is what you have many people who are professors in Islamic studies departments in America and the West, they do. They know more about Qur'an than you and I do. They sit there day and night reflecting about it, reading it, studying it, analyzing it, criticizing it, doubting it, wondering about it. So the uncle puts a veil over their belief and the newer of Iman does not enter their hearts. It shows that this is the barakah of keeping with your akabar. Also some in the hadith. And we're going to repeat this hadith over and over again. You should implant this hadith on your heart. Al-barakatu ma'a akabirikum. Al-barakatu, blessing. Ma'a is with akabirikum, is with your elders. Lies in following the path of your elders. Lies in keeping the company of your elders. Lies in taking the understanding of the deen from those who are senior to you. Al-barakatu ma'a akabirikum. The third reason that Imam al-Razimullah gives is that by uh, the third reason Imam al-Razimullah gives that why the Quran was revealed over 20 years, 20 plus years, 21, 22 odd years, is that Al-Fatullah wanted to soothe the Prophet Muhammad because he knew that the Prophet was going to face so much opposition from his enemies 
Every time the revelation came, it was a moment of soothing, a moment of happiness, a moment of comfort, a moment of reinforcement for the beloved messenger. So Allah wanted to reinforce him and make him happy throughout the course of those 20 years of his prophethood. And more than that, Allah also, in addition to that rather, Allah also wanted to send Jibreel, Jibreel the angel of Jibreel, over and over and over again uh, in the process of the 20 odd years because the coming of Jibreel was also a source of glad tidings for the beloved messenger. And the fourth reason that Imam Marazi gives is that some things in the Quran are based on certain incidents, certain things that occurred during the time of the Prophet. Events that occurred during the prophethood, challenges he faced, things like the Isra and the Mi'raj, things that were going to occur over the course of those 20 plus years. So that's why it was unable, although it was the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but it would have been unable to reveal all of that immediately in the beginning. So this is some reasons why the Quran was revealed gradually. The second thing that we want to look at is some of the, very briefly, is some of the fazail of the Quran. Very briefly, actually, all you have to think is your Akidah is that the Qur'an is the book of Hidayah. The Qur'an is that book which came to take each and every one of us out of our individual zone, our individual darkness and sin, into our individual nur, our individual light. The Qur'an has the source, or is the source for all the answers to all our needs, to all our issues, to all our problems. Now, if you really viewed the Qur'an like that, and this is what I'm stressing this, then you would be reading the Qur'an much more than you do. If you think about it, the reason we don't read the Qur'an is, again, the general things I mentioned in the first half, we don't have the Qadr and the Ahmiyyah. We don't have the value or the importance of this book in our lives. That's why days can go by in which we never read it. Years can go by and we still don't even know what messages Allah gave us. Imagine that machine that is sitting in a corner and is not being used according to its instruction manual. Is there any factory owner in the world that will buy any machine in this factory and not have somebody who knows the manual, who knows how to operate that machine properly. Well, you and I, we are human beings, and Allah revealed this manual, how to operate this human being, how to successfully run this human being, but we are living a life of oblivion. We're not interested in how to run this human being. We'd rather follow whatever our own whims and desires give us. It means we'd rather follow our akko. Because know that there's no way a person is just, uh, we're not robots. Everybody is living their life according to something. If you don't know what Allah has said in Quran, that means you're not living your life according to Quran. It means you must be living your life according to something or something other than the Quran. So we have to look at the Quran as something that is addressed to us. Look, if you were to meet a non-Muslim and you were to tell them about the day, what would be one of the first things you would say? You would say, well, we believe that we have the final revelation. We have, we're the only people on earth, we're the only people in the universe, if you will, who have the word of God, who have the divine word. And he'd look at you and he'd say, no, you don't. He'd say, what do you mean? And he'd say, well, if I thought I had the word of God, I'd be reading it all the time. If I thought God sent me a message, I'd be reading it day and night, and I never see you reading it. You don't even know what that message is. So I don't really think you really believe that what you have is from God. You don't really believe what you have is divine or sacred. If we really believe that we had a message, certain examples that we give often, is if you were to get a letter in the mail and the envelope had your name on it and you open it up and there's a letter in Chinese, so would you stop? No. You would run around and you would find somebody who knows the Chinese language who could interpret that letter for you. Why? Just because your name was written on the envelope, just because you feel that this is some message, 
some letter came to me addressed to me in the mail, so I have to find out what it is. In fact, even if you get a fax in the English language and only one line is blurry, you start calling that person frantically. Tell me, fax that, send that fax again. I can't read one line on that fax. You understand 90% of the facts, but you'll keep calling that person over and over again just to get that missing 10%. Well, know, my friends, that the Qur'an is addressed to you. Until you view the Qur'an as a personal, individual message addressed to you personally, you will never have an interest to read it. You will think it's some holy, sacred book that you should put on the top shelf of your bookshelf for the barakah. No. You should view that the source of all my problems, the proof of my iman, the proof that my iman beloved, the proof that I believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that I should have a yearning to know what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. If I love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then what type of lover is there who doesn't read the love letter that comes from his beloved? Do you think if Majnoon got a letter from Layla, he would just put it on the top shelf and never read it? He'd be reading it all the time, he'd be memorizing it, he'd be pondering it, he'd be singing it to himself day and night. So if you love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you would love to want to know what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to tell you you should love reading the Qur'an. So we must understand, we must change our approach to the Qur'an al-Kareem. Now how to then approach and how to read the Qur'an? There's something in our deen called tafsir. There's something in our deen called tafsir, which means to explain, to understand, to comment upon the Qur'an. And we mentioned this here in the beginning that one of the purposes Al-Fatah sent the Prophet was to do ta'lim of the book, was to teach and explain the book. So ta'lim doesn't mean to simply recite the book. It means to sit and teach and explain it, to expound upon it. This is what the ulama of the ummah have been doing from time immemorial. It means to do tafsir. And in fact, Allah Fatah mentioned in the Quran that he sent the Prophet that Allah sent you to do bayan to explain to the humanity what has been revealed unto them. Now, the reason why a lot of us are astray in our approach to the Quran is because we don't understand what this thing of Syria is. Some of us are fooled by this ayah or we misinterpret this ayah. Allah says, that I have made the Qur'an easy. Yes, sarna. Lizikri. Is there anybody who will remember it? Is there anybody who will take nasiha from it? So some people, instead of doing tafsir al-Qur'an, they do tafsir al-Qur'an. They think that the Qur'an is something that's very easy. Anybody can pick it up and study it and read it, like how the Christians do Bible study, and they can get everything they want from it. And there's no reason to consult a tafsir, whether it's a written tafsir or a living tafsir. There's no need to go to scholars. This is a big deception that the ummah has given us. This is a lie that the scholars have given us that we must learn the Qur'an from them. This is a very, very big delusion that we have about the Qur'an. First of all, we should know that the Qur'an is composed of different types of things. One is the basic nasiha or aqa'id. That anybody can pick up and understand. Belief in Qiyamah, belief in Akhirah, belief in Jahannam, belief in Jannah, to be good to one another, to stay away from evil things, to purify yourself. All of these things are easy. This is the type of zikr and nasiha that Allah means. But there are many verses of the Qur'an that pertain to ahkamat. There are some verses of the Qur'an that unless you understand what uh, the background is to that verse and what context that verse was revealed, 
who is being referred to in that verse, you won't be able to understand the Quran. And the proof of this, which I've witnessed pretty much in my experience, is you can't find somebody who can honestly say that they've read the entire English translation of the Quran on their own, just in translation, with no footnotes, with no commentary, with no teacher, with no tapes, with nothing. I've never met anybody yet in my life who says that without having any teaching, without ever studying under any scholar, without going to any dars, without listening to any tapes, I just picked up the Quran in English and I read it cover to cover on my own. I've never met anybody like that. The reason is because what happens is when you try to do that, the Quran is a very difficult book. It's not an easy book to just go through cover to cover like that. There'll be many passages where all of a sudden you'll stop and you won't understand what's being said. You won't understand what's being referred to. You won't understand why one topic is being dropped and then picked up later on. So the Quran is something that has to be taught. The Quran is something that has to be learned. The Quran is something that has to be transmitted. And you have to receive that Quran from those who received it from the generations before them. You know, practically how to do that. For those of us who are students or those of us who cannot go and study somewhere formally, well, what you have to do, you have a few options. You either have to find somebody who will teach Quran in your masjid or will teach Quran in your home or will teach Quran in your MSA or will teach Quran in your university on a regular basis and you simply go and attend their lessons. The second option that you have and somebody asked this question that, well, what, there's so many books printed today. We live in the information age. Why can't we just read books on Islam and get knowledge through books? So the reason it's better to get knowledge from teachers is because this is the way of our deen. For example, the hadith of Imam Bukhari have been printed for maybe over a thousand years. But you will find that the Muhaddithin never had this practice. They would simply pick up the collection of Bukhari. Or a student of hadith would be asked to just go, well, the book is printed. They could have also said, well, we're not in love in the information age. But they could have said, we live in the age of the printing press. There's no need to go to the Hadith scholars anymore. That was back in the time before there was a printing press. Now these books are being printed. There's no need to go to somebody who has Ijaz in Bukhari. Just sit there and go to some press and people are hand copying them out, right? Get a copy of Bukhari and sit there and read it. But can anybody show me one example in the past, well, barring maybe the past 100, 150 years, any example between uh, the year 950, when the Sahih Bukhari was compiled, up to 800, 1850, 900 years, where any muhaddith, any hadith scholar ever said this to anybody who wanted to acquire hadith. So, well, there's your Bukhari, just taken and read it. You don't need it. So the entire tradition of hadith has always been like that, that you would sit in the company in the lecture of a hadith scholar. The same thing applies to Quran. That they used to be the rules of the Quran. Some of you I saw had a book by uh, Sayyidina Hassan al-Basri, who was a Tamil. Know that the Sahaba started the system. And all of you know this, that the four Khulafai Rashidin, everything that they did as a hujjah, is a delil, is a proof for us. So this famous Tabi in Hassan al-Basri, rahimahullah, he's such a big Tabi, he is actually one of the most important Tabiin because he bridged the generation of the Sahaba and the Tabai Tamil. In the sense that, he met a lot of the Sahaba. He was a student of many, many Sahaba. You can imagine that he just barely missed meeting the Prophet Muhammad But then Allah Ta'ala gave him such a long life that he also lived to see that time when the Sahaba were very few in number and there were many people of this generation called Tabai Tabain, the third generation, and he was a teacher of many of them. So he was a student of many Sahaba and he was a teacher of many of his own generation Tabain and also of Tabai Tabain. Now who was this person, Sayyidina Hassan al-Basri? 
He was the person who said to Ali Radulanhu when he was Khalifa, he ordered Hassan al-Basri upon his command, he told Hassan al-Basri to give dars of the Qur'an in the Jamia Masjid in Kufa. So from the time of the Sahaba, it wasn't just open for anybody. Back then when the greatest teachers of this Ummah were alive, the Sahaba, even then it wasn't just open for anybody to give dars in the Masjid. It wasn't just open that anybody could go and comment on the Qur'an and do tafsir of the Qur'an, no. Formally, the top scholars of the Sabin were appointed to give dars. In fact, it comes in the, in the biography of Hassan al-Basri that in his dars, when he was appointed to teach the Qur'an in the Jamia Masjid of Kufa, there were also Sahaba used to sit in that dars. This was the ilm of the Sabin that he could never surpass or come even near even the dust and the ankles of a Sahaba in his iman, in his taqwa, in his daraja, in the law. But some of the Sabin in their ilm reached such a rank that even some of the latecomers of the Sahaba used to sit and attend their dars. This is who Sayyidina Hassan Basri is, and this is our hunja, our dalil, that the Qur'an is transmitted through dars and tadris, through ta'lim and ta'allam, from the time of the Sahaba. Because if Sayyidina Ali is alive, that is considered the dore Sahaba, the time of the Sahaba. So this is a mutawatir, an unbroken chain of practice from the time of Sahaba until now. It means that even if the Tabin, who are so much greater than us in their knowledge of Arabic, so much greater than us in their iman and taqwa, if even they have to sit at the feet of somebody to understand the Qur'an, despite being masters of the Arabic language, then who are you and me to think that we can simply pick up these books in English translation and understand the Qur'an from that? But again, at the same time, I'm not altogether closing the door to that. If you can find somebody who can teach you on a weekly basis, or you can go and attend some dars on a weekly basis, then alongside with that, you can and you should read the authentic tafasir that have been translated into the English language, or for those of you here who know the Urdu language, uh, in Urdu there is a vast amount of material, alhamdulillah. Our ulama uh, in India and Pakistan, they left no stone unturned in putting the ulum of Dain into Urdu. It's incredible the amount of work they did. They're actually a model for any non-Arabic speaking community in the world. If we wish to preserve or transfer this Dain into English, or transfer the, the, the knowledge of the deen that is contained in Arabic into English, we just need to look at that moment. And in fact, today when people, uh, sometimes here in America also, criticize the ulama in Indian Pakistan, or criticize the madaris, or say that, look how backward our countries are, well, if you really want to be honest and look at a country like Pakistan, only 5% of the education is being done by the madaris. As you know, the majority of people go to schools and colleges and universities, there's just about 5-10% of people who actually go to madrasas, darlulums, not just perhaps, but proper darlulums when they do the whole Arabic course. Now look at that 5% of group of people. You can imagine when Pakistan was created or during partition, that the ulama said, okay, we take the responsibility, that we will preserve the ulum of the deen, and to the government, we leave the responsibility of creating the ulum of the dunya. So look how our ulama lived up to their responsibility. There is not a single topic in the world that you cannot find tons of books in the Urdu language in it. I've studied Arabic books and I've studied Urdu books and I can tell you there's very, very little, almost nothing even, that is left in the Arabic language that you cannot find in the Urdu language. The ulama, 100%, they did their job with shining colors. Whereas the government or the secular-minded people or the scientists or the doctors of the Indian and Pakistani countries, they failed in their job. They failed to create proper universities. They failed to create proper research institutes. The lack, the situation of education in those countries is dismal. It's not the ulama who failed the country. The ulama says that our job is only to preserve their religious knowledge. 
they left it to the government and the, and the private sector. Don't try to blame the government either. If you look at this country, much of higher education was started in this country through initiatives of the private sector. So anyway, you can read authorized and authentic tafsirs in your language, provided that even that you should do so under the guidance of some scholar, in the sense that, for example, if you were to read Marafa Quran in English, right, which almost uh, at least one half of this tafsir is available in English, or there's another English which is a tafsir available completely in English called Anwar al-Bayan, Illuminated Discourses of the Noble Quran, I think it's called. If you read that, and then from time to time, toss off your understanding with a scholar. That, okay, you know, I read this surah, or I read these 20 pages, and this is what I understood. Or, while I was reading this, I didn't understand this. Right? Take somebody who can guide you. And you tell me that if anybody in this world wanted to be a doctor, like, for example, let's take myself. I know the English language, alhamdulillah. I can understand the medical textbooks. I've sometimes taken a sneak peek at a Sheikh Hussain al-Sadar's medical textbooks and found that I can understand the English in them. So if I was to tell you I'm just going to sit here and read the books on my own, would any one of you accept me as a doctor? Or if I was to say every week, me and, and one or two brothers here, Brother Amr and Brother Mansoor, all of us are going to sit together and we're going to read the books together. We're going to sit there and read the medical textbooks together. And we're going to do that for a few years and all three of us are going to become doctors. So then when you have an operation, why don't you come to me? You look at me like I'm crazy. You say, no, no, it's not enough to just read the books. You have to formally, systematically acquire that knowledge. You have to go to an institution of learning. You have to sit at the hands of people who are trained at that knowledge. And even when you graduate from med school, you still have to spend three, four years as an apprentice, as a resident, or what you call in the, in the old country as a house job, is sitting and learning this art at their side. Only then will we let you come anywhere near us on the scalpel. So why? You tell me why is that? Is the Quran any more less than medical science? Anybody give me an ugly reason, an intellectual reason why it's not possible to become a, become a doctor without having professors, but it's possible to become a scholar of Quran without having teachers. And it's not because because here in this word dhikr means nasiha, or it means to remember. It doesn't mean to master. You will not find a single loha in the entire early Arabic lexicon that says dhikr means to master, to be able to teach, or to become proficient. It simply means to acquire nasiha. And yes, the basic things of our deen are very easy to get from Quran. Or if a person wants to memorize the Quran, in the world there are six, seven, eight-year-old children who have memorized the entire Quran. You can, you'll, you'll, you'll even admit that I can memorize the medical science textbooks if I want to, but just still let, not let me come near you with a scalpel. So it means there is something about formal, informal study of the Quran. And all I'm suggesting is even if you don't want to agree with this, I would just invite you to sit and try it out. Go and listen to a tafsir of an alim and compare it with what you were able to come up with on your own. Because what ha- what's happening now, right now, post-2001, what is happening in this world, in America, that there are Muslims, or actually some of them are murtad, some of them are apostates, they openly say we've left Islam, or they're extreme liberal reformers of the deen, that they are attacking the Qur'an. There was a time when people did bid'ah and tasawwuf. There was a time when people did bid'ah and fiqh. There was then came a time when people did bid'ah and hadith, and now we are living in the age where people are doing bid'ah in the Qur'an, they're creating innovations in the Qur'an. They call themselves the progressive Muslims. They reinterpret eyes on the Qur'an. Openly, the women say, the women openly say that the Qur'an needs to be rewritten. They literally say that. The Qur'an needs to be rewritten for today's modern times. And this group, before nobody used to listen to them, 
but for certain political reasons and for certain reasons, this group is gaining ascendancy. You can walk into a Barnes & Noble and you find their books sitting there, whereas you would have never seen their books five years ago. So when this group is doing so much effort to destroy the Qur'an, when New York Times editorials and op-ed pieces are praising members of this group, are encouraging them that, yes, reform the Qur'an, take out the ayat of jihad from the Qur'an, take out these ayat from the Qur'an, change the hukum of hijab in the Qur'an, do all of these things. So when they're doing so much, and us as Muslims, we're sitting passively, we're continuing to sit in our own little Bible study sessions. You know, once I was in New York, I was traveling somewhere in Queens, and I had to pray Asr. I'm from Manhattan, and I'm not that familiar with Queens, but I happened to go there for some reason, I needed to pray Asr. I missed in Jamaat time, I walked into a masjid, and I saw a strange thing in the masjid, that there was a chair, and there was a man sitting, an old man, uh, and there was a semicircle of chairs around him that were empty. And I started praying. As Allah had it, as soon as I made the niyyah to pray, that class started and the students started to come in. In the masjid, in the main hall, in the masala, they were sitting about right there, so I prayed in the corner where that over brother is sitting. In the semicircle, men sat like this, and the women, they made up the other half of the semicircle. So they had men and women sitting together without any type of hijab, any type of partition, in the main hall of the masjid. And what they were they doing? They were doing a Qur'an study session. Okay. So when I finished my Asr Salah, I sat there and I, I just listened. And I remember this so vividly that they were doing Surah Baqarah. And he went around and he asked all of them to say what they thought. And he started with the women. He said something like, ladies first. So he started with the women. And one woman said, very humbly, probably a very sincere sister, who was attending those sessions so she could increase her knowledge of the Qur'an, she said, that, oh, you know, I read in this tafsir about this ayah, and that tafsir said this, and it moved me so deeply, and she said this, that, the other. And that man just listened to her, and he said, Sister, what are you doing? I don't want you to tell me what the tafsir says. I want you to tell me what you yourself think about this ayah. I want you to tell me how you yourself feel, and these were his words, I still remember them, I feel like I'm hearing them right now, and I'm saying them to you. I want you to tell me how you yourself feel about this ayah. So that sister was just silent and she didn't respond. And he kept trying and she kept being silent because that sister, mashallah, Allah gave her tawfiq, that she took the knowledge of that ayah from the scholars. Now, and after receiving that and after already explaining that and sharing that with her class, now what is there left for her to say on her own? I'm telling you, I'm somebody who's formally studied the deen for, for a number of years. I have nothing to offer you from Quran that I, except what I've taken from my scholars. If you were to tell me to give a dursa Quran every day in this masjid, I would shiver and shake. It would take me hours and hours of preparation to do it for just half an hour a day. And I'm somebody who studied Arabic, who studied Quran, who studied tafsir, who studied hadith. So if I feel like that, then what is going to be the case of a person who hasn't been able to study these things? So this way of studying Quran, this is not the way of our Salaf Salahim. Yes, if you have a scholar amongst you, or you, listen, you can listen to the tapes of a scholar, Right? But to engage in a free-for-all discussion, this is called Tafsir Barra'i. And the Prophet Muhammad in the Sahih Hadith and Abu Dawud, he mentioned, or he warned, or he, ca- uh, he cautioned against doing this type of Tafsir. In fact, it's such a strange Hadith. It's such a strange Hadith. The meaning of the Hadith is that that person, uh, قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من قال في كتاب الله برأيه فأصاب فقد أخطأ 
that that person who speaks, this is an Abu Dawud, Sunan of Abu Dawud, this is Sahihadis, Man Qala Fi Kitab Allahi, that that person who speaks about the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Bira'yihi, from his own opinion, from his own whims, in an uneducated manner, Fa'asaba, and he even is correct. He comes up with the right thing. He says the correct tafsir. He doesn't say anything wrong. He doesn't say anything against the Sharia. Fakad Akta. Verily, he has still erred, he is still in khata, he has still sinned. Why? Because he dared to comment on the Quran of his own opinion without a foundation, without a basis, without a training, without an education. It's like saying if there's a medical quack that he starts prescribing medicines without base. So if he happens to give you the right medicine, he's still going to be taken to jail for practicing without a license, for faking or passing himself as a doctor. Nobody's going to say, well, actually, he ended up giving him Tylenol and it worked. They'll say, no, but he was practicing without a license. This is the words of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, in the Kulli Muhaddithin, Qala Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Man fa'asaba fakat That that person who comments on the Qur'an from his own ra'i, from his own opinion, without any basis, without any knowledge, without any humility, even if he is correct, he has erred and he has sinned. So what more prohibition could you want then? This isn't to try to close the doors of the Qur'an to anybody. In fact, what I always tell people is that we want everybody to understand the Qur'an with the full tafsir. See, some people try to misrepresent the students of knowledge. And they say, look, these people don't want you to understand the Qur'an. They say you shouldn't read Qur'an. They say you shouldn't approach the Qur'an. They want to have a monopoly over the Qur'an. They claim legitimacy and authority is their sole domain. This is one of the big uh, hallmarks of this progressive Muslim movement. They write articles on this. Authority in Islam. Legitimacy of Islamic scholarship. Reclaiming the, the traditional scholarship. They want to reclaim the traditional scholarship from, from the traditional ulama. No, we're not saying to anybody to stay away from the Qur'an. We're saying we want you to approach the Qur'an. We want you to study the Qur'an. We want you to delve deeply into the meanings of Qur'an. We want you to understand Qur'an. But we want you to do it in the proper manner. We don't want you to fool yourself and end up in the middle ground, neither here nor there, just translation. <coughs> if there was just translation, I already explained to you before, forget translation, the people who knew just Arabic. The people who know Arabic, just knowing Arabic isn't enough for them. Some of you heard that famous story of Hamza Yusuf when he went to Egypt. He, went, he sat in the taxi cab and he tried to give them directions and he spoke in Fusa Arabic and the taxi driver looked at him and said, Allah al-Azim and they said, where do you want to go? And Amir. He didn't understand Arabic. And I've met Pakistani brothers in Medina and Mecca who know Arabic, who speak Arabic fluently, the taxi driver there. So I asked one of them, which just happened to meet him in Mecca, I asked one of them that, you know, when the imam is reciting, I said, Masha, you're speaking Arabic so fluently with the shops and with your clients and with the people in the hotel. So, you know, do you understand what the imam recites in the salah? He says, you know, I understand about 20-25% of it. There's also different types of Arabic in the world, right? There's one is the spoken colloquial Amir Arabic, and one is the Arabic of the Qur'an. And there are a lot of similarities, but there are also a lot of differences. Even historically, the people who knew Arabic, they used to sit and they used to read tafsir, they used to listen to the explanation of the Qur'an at the hands of their scholars. If we fail to reclaim that legacy of our scholarship, and again, it's an open invitation to anybody to sit and listen to the tafsir. You know, I used to have a teacher, and it may sound like he was being arrogant, but I had a teacher, and he once said that 
any of these so-called self-style commentators of the Quran, just bring them to me one day. Tell them to pick any page, any surah of the Quran, and I will show to them how they have misunderstood it. I will show to them, or at least I will show to them what they are missing out, how many things that they are missing out from this Quran that we have gotten from our scholars that it's impossible that a person can come up with these things on his own. We cannot come up with our own with those things that our scholars came up with for so many hundreds of years for so many centuries of scholarship. If we really want to understand the Quran, the real tragedy is not that ulama are keeping us from Quran. No. The real tragedy is that self-styled Quranic commentators are keeping us from the tafsir, are keeping us from the knowledge, the gems, and the pearls that the ulama have come up with. Now, if we don't agree with them, then refute them. Go to an alam and say, well, you know, this tafsir says this, and how can it be like that? Or if you think that the seer is against some hadith, bring the hadith and say, well, look, and Imam Bukhari on today has narrated this hadith, and this tafsir says this, so I don't understand. Ask the scholar if you see what is an apparent contradiction. Turn to them for help. You'd be surprised the answers that they give you. I can tell you myself, there are some hadith that I used to wonder, uh, I mean, I used to not understand their meaning. And when I finally sat in front of my teacher in, in Sahih Bukhari, I was amazed that not only did he answer, I don't ask, just in the course of the, when, every time you read every hadith, he would comment on it. And when he would read those couple of hadiths which I always wondered about, when he commented on it, my jaw dropped, not only did he answer my question, but he gave another like 10, 15 things that I would have never even thought of those aspects. It means that you learn so much when you drink from the well of these teachers. If we reclaim our scholarship by number one, become people who read the Arabic Quran, know that to read the Quran is tawab, to listen to the Quran is tawab, to look at the Quran is tawab, to understand the Quran is tawab, to do amal on the Quran is tawab. So there is reward. Listen to me carefully. There is reward for reading the Quran without understanding. There's a separate reward for understanding and there's a separate reward for practicing. But there is reward for reading the Quran without understanding. And if you're not connected to the barakah of the original text, if you're not connected to the Arabic of the text, if you don't have it of reading the Quran, tilawah is ibadah, if reciting the Quran is an act of ibadah, Allah is not going to open up the doors to fetch the Quran for you. He's not going to let you understand the meanings of the Quran if you're so distant from the words of the Quran. So you have to connect yourself to the alfaz, you have to connect yourself to the words. You should recite the Quran every day, a portion of it in Arabic. Imam Munif said that the bare minimum right that the Qur'an has on a person. Ideally, a person should read it every day. But the bare minimum right that the Qur'an has on a person is that a person should take that Qur'an off the shelf, open it up once, and look at it with one glance of love, and then put it back. That's the bare minimum right that the Qur'an has, your mushaf, your copy of the Qur'an has on you. So you should read the Qur'an in Arabic. Number two, you should, as a group, as a masjid, as a community, as an MSA, or you come from different places, in your homes, in your families, you must start the process of learning and studying the Qur'an. Ideal method is to get a living teacher to come and teach you the Qur'an. Second to ideal method is to use tapes or translations from authentic people, but you must still do that under the guidance of somebody. So you still have to find a scholar, and if he says, I'm too busy to come teach you every day or every week, say, okay, at least once a month. And you won't find that people, I'd be, you know, Chicago is known, uh, at least for those of us on the East Coast, is the city of ulama. You have so many ulama here in Chicago, more so than uh, cities like New York and D.C. and Boston and Philadelphia have. So I think it would be very difficult if you ask some alam that just give us one day a month that he would turn you down. Or if you asked him for his phone number and said, well, look, why don't you recommend, ask him to set up a, a syllabus for you. Why don't you recommend it this year that I can read and I'll read a small bit of it every day and maybe once a week I can call you on the phone and once a month maybe you can come 
and you can go over a very quick summary of whatever we studied in that month, or you can answer our questions. Because obviously you're going to start to have questions. Any pursuit of knowledge, if you pursue it properly, you're going to have questions. That's all the more reason to be attached to a scholar. Don't think that you can read Quran on your own and not have any questions and you'll understand it perfectly. You will have questions. There will be things you don't understand. And unless you beforehand set up to make the proper arrangement for addressing those questions, otherwise those questions will gnaw at you. They might even create doubts in you. They might even erode your iman. Shaitan can use those questions as a way of stealing your iman. So you have to develop a system in which you're going to address those questions which are naturally going to come when you start studying the Quran. And another thing that you have to do now this in day and age that you must at least buy two or three books such as these books Ulum al-Quran by Ahmad von Denfer or the Ulum al-Quran by Mufti Muhammad Taki Aswani. I don't know what the English name is. And at least if you can't, don't have time to read them at least have them as a reference on your bookshelf because one day you might meet one of these progressive Muslims or these agnostics or these atheists who will challenge the very Qur'an itself, who will say strange things to you. Like, well, the Qur'an was revealed in a different order, and you read it in a different order. Why is that? Now look at when, if you're caught uneducated, and Shaitan uses this as an attack on you, you'll find some young Muslim men, they, 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 get, they get worried. They don't know how to answer that question, because they have no idea. They don't have, they, some of them might not even have known that the Qur'an was revealed in a different order, and they also have no idea why it is that we read it in the order that we do. Some non-Muslim professor, and this is a big danger. A lot of the Muslim students, they take classes in Islamic studies in the universities from non-Muslims. <coughs> and that non-Muslim professor will get up there and give a lecture on the Quran, and he might say it's not the word of God. He might say that some of it has been changed. He might say that the order is different. He might say that, look who collected the Quran. So until we study Jam al-Quran, Tartib al-Quran, these sciences of the Quran, for our own authentic scholars, we're opening ourselves up. We're leaving ourselves exposed to attacks. So if you don't have time to read it now, at least buy it so you have it in your homes. So if ever the day comes that you need access to that knowledge, you need to know how the Qur'an was gathered, how it was compiled, how it was arranged, who were the scribes of the Qur'an, what was the process of revelation, how did Prophet reveal the Qur'an, how did the Sahaba record the revelation. You need to have at least access to all this type of knowledge. In fact, I would recommend that all of you buy that, for those of you who are English language speakers, Urdu language speakers, mashallah, you have many, many choices. For those of you who are English language speakers, you should go ahead and buy that uh, book, Illuminated Discourses of the Quran, which is a complete tafsir in English, even if you're not going to read it right now. At least you should have it as a reference book. Look at these people. They, every one of them has the Encyclopedia Britannica as a reference. None of them read it to cover to cover, but they want to have it because in case they ever need information on something, in case they should have that thing in their house, you should have an authentic scholarly tafsir in your house. So in case one day you hear an eye on some talk and you want more information, you can go look it up. Someday you have some question, you have the ability to look it up. Everybody should have these two, three books in their house. One is Ulum al-Quran, Ahmed van Denfer. One is Ulum al-Quran, Mufti Muhammad Taqi Usmani. One is Illuminated Discourses by Mufti Ashik Ilahi. If you can get Maraf al-Quran also in English by Mufti Muhammad Taqi. Also you can get the Adab of the Quran by Imam Nawi, translated by Musa Ferber. You should have a few books like this in your house. At least just having those books, you can make the near that, Ya Allah, now the books are on the shelf. Allah Ta'ala, give me the tawfiq to begin them, to begin a path of studying them. So know that we live in an age of ijtihad fil Qur'an. <laughs> there was a time when there was ijtihad and fiqh, and maybe people started doing ijtihad wrongly in hadith. Now we live where there's a whole group of mujtahideen fil Qur'an being prepared to go and attack this book that we have. And you will see that that time will come. 
that this and the fact that it's starting to come in our university campuses, it's coming in our papers, means that, that it's going to start to spread. And sooner or later, if it doesn't hit you, it's going to hit your friend, it's going to hit your cousin, and they're going to come to you looking for help, and you'll be unable to guide them. So you must begin to read the Qur'an, to understand the Qur'an, to learn about the meanings that Allah has given you, to acquire the knowledge of the Qur'an, and to do that by following the methods of qualified scholarship, is there any questions anybody has first on this topic and then uh, last night we didn't have time to finish the question and answer session so first on this topic if you have questions there are some other technical things that I prepared uh, but I think there's not really enough time to go through all of this different things about the Quran about the different types of ayat of the Quran the different mazameen the different subject matter of the Quran but inshallah, when you begin your study of Quran, you will uh, gradually learn all these things. What should you, as a younger person uh, with the utmost adab, um, go to him and stress him in, in learning the Quran, or what what's priority? Is it just learning the Arabic? Is maybe going to you know tafsir and understanding the Quran? I mean, he's unable to cite read. You cannot read the Arabic. Yeah, yeah, that's another very important thing. And it's one of the things I'd written, but I didn't say, is that the ilm of tajweed is very important. In some ways, for a young man, it can be even more important initially than hips. Because you have to learn how to pronounce the Quran correctly. So you have to learn how to read the Quran correctly. You have to learn how to pronounce the Quran correctly. And that's another thing that's a big need in our communities. I myself feel the need. You know, when we did our final year in Tachasas, uh, we had to do one hour of tajweed every day. So you have to arrange as a community, as individuals, circles of tajweed. And then, see, that's the thing. When the community fails, then it becomes difficult. How do I tell that old person without hurting his feelings? But if there was a system there in the community, if there were tajweed classes being offered, it would be so much easier to just invite him to the class in a group setting. He wouldn't feel that he's being singled out, right? Or that there would be some arrangement for him or her to come to. So for that person, again, these things aren't mutually exclusive. He, should never, he shouldn't think of it that way, that either I'm going to do tajweed or I'm going to start learning the tafsir of the Qur'an. So he has to do both. And in fact, if he's an old person, and not only does he not know how to read Qur'an, but also he still has not yet learned the meanings of Qur'an, then he, you know, he really needs to do both. One thing I wanted to also add before I take any more questions is that I should also tell you honestly, and all of you know this, even though you might not have reflected upon this, but the majority of the Muslims in the world, they don't know the Qur'an. If you look at our 1 billion Muslims in the world, probably 900 million, if not more of them, do not know the meanings of the entire Quran. And more than that, they don't have to. So this is a very strange thing about the deen. It doesn't make sense. Again, the uncle will fail you on this. Now, I'm telling you that the farmer in India and Pakistan, who works on the farm for 16 hours a day, right, who in all likelihood maybe not, doesn't even know how to read the Quran, it is not necessary, it is not, it is not, it is not, it is not Farz or wajib for him to know the tarjama and tafsir of the whole Qur'an. Very strange. But at the same time you said that the Qur'an is the book of Hidayah, everybody should learn everything it means, all these millions of Muslims don't know it, how can you say that the farmer doesn't have to know it? Very strange. Very strange thing. Allah revealed this book and this is the thing, and it's not like something that's happening right now in 2001. This was the same case in 1901. It was the same case in 1801. Or was it 2004? The same case in 1904, the same case in 1804, 
right? The vast, the vast majority of Muslims will live and die on this earth and they will not know the, ter- the translation and the meaning, the explication of the entire Quran. And that's perfectly fine. But I also told you it's not fine for you. So know that a person should, I'm not issuing a formal legal opinion here, but based on what I think, right, or what, I, what I've experienced in my own life, is that a person of knowledge, which all of you are, because in, in, in America, having an MA is a person of knowledge, but as far as the whole world goes, having a high school degree means you're a person of knowledge. Because how many people in the world, there's even a minority of people in the world that you have high school and basic college degrees. If you're a person of knowledge, if you know so many things about the dunya, in order for you to remain firm on your deen, firm on your iman, you need to engage the deen at the same level that you engage the dunya. So if you're a person of knowledge, you know biology, you know economics, you know political science, you know computer languages, you know Java, you know C++, it means that you must also engage the deen at equal level of sophistication. So for people like you, the majority of you who are university students, it's must for you that you must know the transition of meanings of Quran because you are a person of knowledge. You are engaging this world in a, in, a, in a more intellectual way, in a more knowing way, so you must have a corresponding level of knowledge about your deen, and you have the ability, you don't have the excuse that the farmer does, and this is why he doesn't have to, because he works 16, 18 hours a day. It would actually be impractical, and I'm somebody who's traveled to inner rural areas of Pakistan, I've seen, you'd be very lucky just to get that person to learn how to read the Quran, how to recite the Quran with proper tajweed, to learn the basic fiqh of his salah, to have the proper aqaid, you know, it would be, it would be a, it's quite a big effort that is going on even in those countries to get people on these basics. To try to get every single farmer to know the tajman tafsir of the Quran, that's just impractical. He just doesn't have the time, the wherewithal, and some of them, you know, maybe even the intellectual capacity to do it. But, that person is still muqallaf of everything that is in the Quran. Why? Because that's the yasarna al-zikra, because the basic message of the Quran is easy. Whether you get it directly from the Quran or tafsir, or he gets it from his imam, his khatib, every Friday in the Jummah Masjid, or he gets it from his father or his mother who might have trained him, or he gets it from Islamic studies class. But sometime it's farz for him in his life, when he reaches maturity, he must get the basic information about the deen. Even if he doesn't know the story of Sayyidina Yusuf salam, He doesn't know all of Surah Yusuf. He doesn't know all the different stories that are in Surah Kaf. He doesn't know all of these many things in Quran. But as long as he knows enough of the Quran, whether he got it directly from the Quran or from a teacher or from a bayan or from a khutbah, but he knows enough in which he can follow the deen, that is what is mandatory upon him. But for people like us who are people of knowledge, it is much better for us that we should study the Quran. We should know it in depth. We should want to know, right? And maybe he even wants to know, don't think that they don't want to. Maybe sometimes they sit there after toiling for 18 hours in the field, in the heat, and they go back to their place where there's no electricity. Maybe they sit there and they make dua that, Ya Allah, I wish I also knew the meanings of Surah Yusuf that the Imam recited today in Fajr. But they don't have the ability to do that. And you and me, we have that ability. What if Allah raises up on the Day of Judgment next to somebody like that? That look, my servant, he wanted to know it, but he didn't have the free time that you have. He didn't have the access to scholars that you have. I didn't give him a brain that I gave you that you understand foreign languages, you're a person of study, you studied in high school and college, you know how to study, you have study skills. You have that ability, why didn't you do it?
only issue is that I'll take that much time uh, to continue my pursuit of sailing. And um, the, the teacher I went to, he was actually, uh, I believe he, he is in Ireland, and he led the pursuit. And what used to happen was that um, the, the Port Island that we learned, we uh, discussed from had its own pursuit, you know, uh, its own notes. And um, whenever I would ask him questions on those notes, he would say, no, no, don't ask those questions. He actually had his own pursuit book, which is actually written in um, Urdu, and he's from the Indo-Pak area. So the only reason I'm saying that I, can't, I don't know how to state my question is that, you know, it seemed to me that he was close-minded. He wouldn't even let me, you know, progress or even ask questions because sometimes his tafsir would be different from what is written on the, the Quran itself. And this Quran is, it can be found in, it, it was a very common Quran that, I know, that I've seen on the shelves of uh, Muslim um, Sajid that I went to. So, I mean, is there a way of actually approaching him to tell him that I can't I actually stop going not for that reason, but well that's one of the reasons, but not completely, but I mean how do I do I approach him? Because he was it seemed like he was very closed minded. He would not even discuss that. And there were even some some ayahs which were completely different from what he was explaining and, and what was actually written in the Quran. So I, I didn't know how to you, what you had was an English tafsir printed and what you were looking at. See, what you have to do is you really have to pick the right person. Pick somebody who you trust, that you trust his scholarship, but you also trust his amal, you trust his taqwa, right? And then what you do, see, look, when we study in the university, what do we do? We put our, ourselves in the hands of our professors. Whatever syllabus he makes, we study it. You go to organic chemistry at University of Chicago with a different textbook from organic chemistry at Northwestern, which you're using a different textbook from the organic chemistry class at UIC, right? But the student at UC doesn't say, oh, I want to use that textbook. He just puts himself in the hands of his teacher. So what you would do in a situation like that is you would pick some teacher, and then rather than trying to pick your own things and reading it and then sort of challenging him, just ask him openly, what would you like me to read? Can you give me something to read? Or maybe you can give him a list of some of those tafsir names I gave you in English. And here's the list of this is I found that these are the books that are available in English. Is there any one of these that you think it would be okay for me to read along with your in, along with the class I give you? If you open yourself up like that, right, then he'll most likely he'll probably circle one and say, Okay, why don't you buy this and you can read this along with it and if there are any questions you have you can do it. So normally you should be more open, right? In other words, if you find what you appear to be close mindedness, the way to react to that is with an open mind. Right? Because your openness will then open that other person. This is just a general principle in life. Right? Your openness will enable that other person to open up to you. But if you also ins- he insists on this one and you also insist on that one, then you're both just being closed minded just in a time. You insist on whatever it was that you had, he insists on using whatever it is that he had. So then you're not going to go anywhere. Right? So it's better in a case like that that if you go to him, ask him if there's anything that you can read. Maybe he doesn't know, he's not aware of the English literature, so like I said, give him a list of books. Ask him if you could pick one of those and let you read it. And then if you feel that maybe perhaps this person still won't do that, and maybe he'll tell you, I just want you to sit here and listen. So even then you should ask yourself, that do I get benefit from just sitting here and listening? If you do, then keep going. If the only benefit you were getting was from your own study, then that means you're still, you're still in need of a teacher. If you're getting benefit both from your own study and from listening to him, then you can keep going from the benefit from listening to him.
years ago, about a year plus a long time, but when the students from Louis Dawkins took a book charge and um, while they were talking about it, they put the Bible on the floor, and we were kind of surprised that they put their holy book on the floor. What I see now happening in our mercy also, people are leaving Quran and then they have to go somewhere and they just put it on the floor. Personally, I think the place we put our feet on, we shouldn't be putting our feet on. At the same time, uh, when you're reading Quran and you keep the book open, you go somewhere else, some people say, don't leave it open. Is there any view on that? Yeah, it's preferred uh, to take the first part first. It's preferred of them not to put the Quran on the floor. Uh, unfortunately, there are some people uh, you know, in certain parts of the world uh, especially who have this habit that they think it's okay to put the Quran on the floor. And that's why Allah, in this great work has been done that somebody has translated a, a book on the adab of the Quran by Imam al-Nawi, who is a pious early Arab Shafi scholar, right? Uh, I don't know what it's called exactly, the morals and manners of the Quran or something like that. A- etiquettes of the Quran, right? So you might just want to gift a person that, right? I mean, these are the type of things that institutions should be doing. They should be buying these type of books in bulk and you get them in discount rates and just be giving them to people who have that problem, right? Uh, because, unfortunately, some people, again, this happens to do with the akal. All the fun, the akal thinks, well, oh, no, it's not like that. And, uh, you know, show me the hadith where I'm prohibited to put the Quran on the floor. So, adab is adab, right? A hadith, you need to establish a hukam of the sharia. You don't need hadith to establish an adab, right? You can just tell them this. Right, that's what I would normally tell a person. That there's something called nispa, which means that when something is connected to something, it val- its value goes up. So when two things are related, they have a nispa to one another, the higher thing dominates. For example, if a new masjid is built, <coughs> right, and they put one tile, and they lay tile in the masjid, and they put the same tiles in the bathroom. Although everything is new, the bathroom hasn't been used, right? But because that tile has nispa with the bathroom, you don't want to walk barefoot on that tile. And because this tile has nispa with the masjid, you're willing to prostrate your forehead onto this masjid. The same thing with the musaf of the Qur'an. Because technically speaking, what it is forbidden to touch, unless you're in a state of wudu, right, is the Arabic words or the pages upon which the Arabic is written. But this cardboard cover, this binding of the Qur'an, the fuqaha have written, and this is the ijma of the fuqaha, right, and you won't find any hadith that says this. But it's the ijma of the fuqaha that once that binding is attached, becomes mutasil with that mushaf, that because of that nispa, because of that relation, it's also impermissible to touch the cover of the Qur'an without wudu. And all of you know that I think that we don't go and touch the cover of the Qur'an without wudu. Well, nobody says, oh, well, there's no Qur'an written on that. If you use akal, you can use that argument. So the same reason, but the adab of the Qur'an, the nisbat that the Qur'an has, the power that the Qur'an has, that we won't want to touch the cover of the Qur'an, the binding of the Qur'an without wudu, it's the same reason why we won't put it on the floor. We won't want to make our feet step over it. Because it has tashibi, it has mushamit, it has a resemblance of something that we're stepping on it with our feet, or we put things that are beneath us over our feet. Just think that that person, then how would he like it if he was lying down in his sleep, and we, his head was here, and we, well, I don't use that, his head was here, and we put our foot over his face. He wouldn't like it, right? Because you should ask him, invite him somehow, kindly. And again, the best way, so the sunnah way, also, never try at, at most, not never, but tried whenever possible not to single people out. He always made some type of communal intizam, right? Where he could do the ihsan, a public thing. So one thing might be just teaching part of that book, just having a dars. You know these different talims that we do, you can do talim for many different books. In addition to fazal al-a'mal, 
some person maybe if you feel that and even in the community the elders of the masjid can do mushroom and maybe from one week do ta'lim of that book etiquette of the Quran if they feel that there's some other problem in the community maybe marital relations start doing ta'lim from a book that pertains to that so these issues are publicly addressed for that one person you know who has a problem there are probably 10-15 who actually have the same problem you, don't, you wouldn't know it is hidden so and the second thing is about leaving it open leaving it open again the reason people say you should close it one reason is because the Quran is sort of exposed. And that's why you have a cover or binding on all books. Even Western, I mean, every book in the world, the reason for the binding is to preserve it, to protect it. Right? Even, I mean, everything. So, when you leave the Quran open, if you know, okay, I'm going to go have my sharing, and I'm not going to be back for another 20 minutes. So, it's just other, in the sense that you want to preserve and protect the Quran, you want to reseal it in its protective casing, you want to close it so that its binding is once again closed and protecting it. It's that simple. A person might also think that if you leave it open, maybe dust may fall, it, fall upon it, right? Uh, so for some people, these things are natural, right? Although there are some people who are from the traditional world who still have a lot of other in them, right? They'll say, well, right? They can't explain why their heart, it's something that it tickles, it, it bothers their heart. So that's an ihsas that they should be grateful to Allah, Allah has given them that. If somebody doesn't have that, then we should make dua that Allah also put in his heart the other than the azmat of the Quran. My question is a further extension to your brother's question. Um, I mean, throughout our lives, you know, back in India, Pakistan, you know, we've been taught um, to do things a certain way, and then here in U.S., I've been, you know, watching people and things that they in totally opposite. What I'm talking about here is like uh, what I was uh, taught is like when somebody's sitting reading Quran on the floor, no one should sit uh, sit high, like on the sofa, on the back, above the Quran. Is that, uh, and then yeah. here in the U.S., people don't care. See, the thing is that other, okay, let me explain. What, what are the limits to other? Are there limits to other? Right? Or can there be no limit to other? Right? So, as you, there is no limit to other as long as it doesn't lead to shirk or it doesn't lead to bidda. Now, bidda is something that's a very misunderstood concept. Bidda doesn't mean to do something that wasn't around in the sunnah. Because if it's that bidda, then the way we learn to read today is bidda. Because the Sahaba didn't sit there and go, Alif, Ba, Ta, right? And they didn't have these rules of this way that our people, uh, the, the ulama of the fun of the have made. Nor did they study it in this way. Nor did they study Arabic in such a way. They didn't memorize their sarf. They didn't have these different categories for the sayings of the Prophet, like Sahih, Hassan, Marfu, Muttasil. Bidda means to add something to the deen at a level which it is not. In other words, to make something sunnah when it's not sunnah, right? To say, for example, for me to say it's sunnah to uh, learn how to read the Quran using Quranic Aida. No, no, that's not sunnah, but it's a perfectly permissible and acceptable way to attain a sunnah goal, which is to recite the Quran properly. So to add something to deen at a level in which it isn't at. So if you say, well, this is permissible in the deen, then you can do a thousand billion things. But if you lay that thing from merely permissible and say that it's sunnah, then it becomes a bidah, right? Uh, so, to insist on somebody that it's haram uh, to sit above the Quran, that wouldn't be right. That would be a bidah, right? But to yourself, feel that, look, I don't think that's appropriate, that's fine. And to maybe invite others only at that level of inappropriateness, not unlawfulness, right? But inappropriateness, that would be fine also. And again, one of the reasons for that is, for example, that a person's feet is above the Quran. Uh, so there's a sort of a balance that a person has to do on how much 
he practices himself and how much he tries to enforce on other people. So you can't really enforce some t- in terms of adab. You can invite, and I'm talking about certain adab, not adab of parents and things like that has to be enforced. But these type of other adab that we're talking about, the more and more adab, when we say there are no limits to adab. So when we reach the finer etiquette, uh, then it's up to you. You know, but we we shouldn't try to enforce everything on everyone because they won't take to it kindly. Yeah, one for one two. Yeah, th- well, that brings up something that sometimes adab is based on urf or culture, right? So in some cultures, a saliva isn't viewed. And actually in the Sharia, by the way, saliva is 100% pure tahir. It has no, uh, uh, there's nothing blameworthy attached to saliva as far as the Sharia, as the saliva human being, as far as the Sharia goes, right? In fact, technically speaking, every single thing of a human being is mukarram, is, is honored and respected in our being, uh, in our Sharia. So even the saliva of a person would count as that. So in some cultures, in some places, of orf means the tradition, the culture, the prevalent practice of that place. Uh, saliva is not viewed as something bad, so when they use it to turn the page, it's not bad. For some people in America, because those of us who were born in America, things can appear different, right? So for somebody who might be called, yeah, he's looking his fingers. It's not something that we normally do. But uh, again, so it sort of depends on the person's intention. So categorically, we would say that doing that is not against others. But for a person who thinks that it's improper to do that, then he shouldn't do what he thinks improper. So sometimes adab is also personal, can be individualized. But that level of adab, again, can't be enforced on others. So from a, from a religious perspective, it's fine if a person does that, uh, and if he slightly wets his fingers in order to be able to turn the page. And then over here. So go on. Yeah, I have a question. Earlier you were talking about the manual means of Allah, a lot of us, a lot of brothers and sisters were named by their parents by one of the attributes of Allah, like myself and a lot of brothers here, like Bakr, Bazi, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. So I was wondering, I've heard that uh, since it's the attribute of Allah, you have to put Abdul in front of it. But there's a lot of people that haven't done that. So I was wondering if there's certain names that require that, and if all, or all of them require it, or... And if you haven't done that, are we in error, or what should be done about that? Okay, as far as that question goes, off the topic, but I'll answer it anyway, that there are certain, it only applies to certain names. There are some names of Allah SWT that exclusively belong to Him, and there are some names that Allah SWT has used for other things. So the Fuqaha, and I remember going through this ruling once, that there are particular names in which you have to have the word Ab, for example, Abdurrahman. So a person should not be named Rahman, right? But there are other words like Rashid. That a person, with that name, of Allah's name is Ar-Rashid, it's okay for a person to be named Rashid. It's not necessary. Although, again, it might be a matter of other if somebody wants to have the preferability, but it's not necessary for him to add the word up to his name. So this would be have, have to be looked at a case-by-case basis. And right now, at the top of the head, just before you ask, I don't know what the hukum is about Basit and about the other ones. This would have to be looked at. Uh, these are the two I remember that they were given in the example was Rahman and Rashid. So with a name like Rahman, which is exclusively the providence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you should have the word Abd. But with Rashid, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may have used it in Quran or Prophet may have used it in Hadith or other things. Like Rahim, by the way. Rahim, you don't have to have the word Abd. 
because Prophet uh, referred to the Prophet as Rahmatan al Alameen. So this is a decision that the Fuqaha have made for us, right? That those names that Allah has used exclusively for Himself, perhaps it is then befits our Tawheed that we do not use those names for ourselves other than we use the prefix Abd before them. But those words that Allah may have used for other things, other beings, other parts of the creation, right? <coughs> then because Allah Himself chose to share that name, uh, then we won't require that a person put the word Abd before it. So what you'd have to do is, you know, go to one of your local ulama and bring up your name and then ask her, better rather than going on your own, when you and whoever you know who are like that make a list of the names, and then one person can go once and just get it sorted out. And then if you do have one of those names that fall into the category like Rahman, then you should add the name, the word Abj before it. So. Okay, this, this whole knowledge of Ilmun Nasikul Mansuk is way too high level to go into in a gathering like this, okay? But I just will correct one or two misconceptions. The Prophet on his own never changed or added or misplaced changed an ayah ever, never. I like that. In fact, Al-Fatullah himself says in the Quran, I'm just reading it a few days ago in my Talal. Right, that Al-Fatullah says that we do not abrogate an ayah or change an ayah except that we replace it with that which is better than it. With that which is like it or a replacement for it or that which is better than it. So this job of doing things, Allah did that. Just also know very briefly that Nasik Mansuk doesn't always just mean that the eye is taken out. Like those three different stages of alcohol, those eyes are still in the Quran. So sometimes it's the hukum that is changed and sometimes it's the eye itself. Right? Uh, but those things are things that Allah did and that stuff is already done in the Musaf that you have. So you, the Qur'an uh, that we have is the final revelation, right? There's no more abrogation or abrogated things going on in there. There might be some ayahs in there in which the hukum has been abrogated, but the new hukum will be found in some other ayah. Like the hukum of alcohol, which is first that you should stay away from it, it's not good for you. Then number two, that you should don't approach your salah when you're intoxicated with liquor. And finally, number three, that it's shaitan, that it is a, an evil thing from the, or a despicable thing from shaitan, you must abstain from it altogether. So that is in the final hukam. So the other two ayahs are just there, sort of, if you will, for the historical record, but their hukam is mansuf, that the hukam is no longer simply that, that, oh, you can drink, but you just have to stay with it when you come for salah. No, the hukam is what that final ayah says, is that you have to abstain from alcohol altogether. Some, some ayahs were Yeah, but that, that was during the time of the Prophet. Did, the, did those ayahs It's the replacements that you have. You're asking were they in the lo- which one was in the Loha Mahfuz? You don't need to know that. It won't affect you on the day of judgment. So. Allah won't ask you in Shama. <laughs> yeah. <coughs>
everybody is uh, compiling what they have to their own extent. So what's the best way to approach this question about this, what you were saying about people's peace and harmony? Well, see, the thing is, that's the very unfortunate thing, is that it's become a very black and white thing. You know, and part of it is because maybe there are some people who uh, have tried to prevent people from accessing the Quran. And so then that also created a reaction to people say, no, we have the right to access the Quran. So the thing is that you have to bring people to the middle ground. You have to lead basically what we call informed study. So they should be studying, not taken out from the equation, but that study should be informed and guided and should be done under the guidance of a superior, right? Just like a person who goes to mental, he just doesn't sit there. He's actually very actively and dynamically involved in the process of getting his education. Just like that, you will and should be actively and dynamically involved in pursuing the Quran. But for that person, you don't need to just, you can't dispel his views and words. What you need to do is invite him sometimes if you know that there's a session going on. Or on the first Saturdays of the month, our Fenshek was saying, first Saturday, after Isra, after Maghrib. After Asr, after Asr, he gives us the Seer of the Quran at MSI in Glendale Heights. So if you take him to a gathering like that, if it's in English, I don't know of the other gatherings in English, that's why I don't know what to say. Uh, just take him to that. And then subconsciously, he will begin to see. He will see what the difference is in his understanding, what he knew about those verses, and what somebody who has been trained and studied under scholars, what that person is transmitting to him. So you just need to sort of broadcast to other stations. Don't try to tune out the station he's listening to. Just broadcast the other one and then if Allah Ta'ala wishes for him to have that insight, Allah Ta'ala will himself make him realize that what scholarship is. Well, if you need to present the scholarship to him, don't try to just directly uh, repudiate his view. You know, one thing I said something last week when, when you said that there are people today who, there are people today who claim all types of things. You know, when I was a student at the University of Chicago, there was a an Arab brother there doing his PhD and he gave a halakha presentation in the MSA. Very strange things about the Quran. It was actually later on, especially much later in life, I realized what group and what movement he followed at that time. None of us knew any better. I really don't know anything actually at that time. But everybody was just looking at him like, what is this guy saying? Very strange things about the Quran. And one thing he said was that, that you know, this whole theory that Jubilee brought the revelation is incorrect. And Jibreel Islam is not mentioned anywhere in the Quran. I was like a sophomore and I was considered the most foolish and junior people in all the MSA. But it just so happened, Allah had it, that I happened to read the Quran that day and I had read the word Jibreel. So I raised my hand and everybody's looking at me that this guy's raising his hand. <laughs> so I raised my hand and I said, you know, can I see the Quran that you have? He said, fine. So I opened it up and I just looked at him and I said, doesn't that say Jibreel? And then he looked at me and looked at Quran and the whole lesson just stopped, right? And it's just the bark of Allah Allah Ta'ala will even use people as ignorant as me to save his deen. Allah Ta'ala describes himself that he is the preserver of the Quran. Allah Ta'ala has taken upon himself to do it. Sefaza is just up to us if we want to be kabul, we want to be part of that effort. That we want Allah Ta'ala to accept us for that effort. If we choose not to, Allah Ta'ala will send other people to do it. It's not like Allah Ta'ala will not do it. So there are people who have all kinds of strange views about this Quran. So what I'm telling you is that this is just getting worse. I mean, that's the story from 1993. So things are just getting worse and worse over time. I mean, such a big error, a PhD student, right? You know, Arabic-speaking, Arab, whatever, what have you, saying something like that openly with no shame that Jibreel is even mentioned in the Quran. This is a lie that Jibreel Islam brought the revelation. Allahu Akbar, Kabila. So it's not lack of akal. Sometimes it's too much akal. Right? 
So if you use too much alcohol, also nasak and lasuk will be one of the things that will lead you astray. So sorry. I, I, yeah, as a follow-up to my earlier question, um, is there accountability for you as an individual if the person isn't going to a teacher? Or I mean, at what time or what approach should one take? I know you've kind of planted on it uh, indirectly. It's a communal obligation. It's a personal obligation on you if that person is your mahtahat. If she's your wife, if they're your children, right? Then you will be held to account. But if it's an elder or relative or somebody who, in other words, doesn't listen to everything you say, right? You don't really have control over what they do. Or you're not responsible for them in any way. So then you should try to invite them in some way. But like I said, better, the better way to invite somebody initially is to make that setup in the community rather than invite them directly. You know, or arrange for it before, because what you're going to do is you're going to tell him, and then you're just going to leave him, and he's going to have to run around and find a teacher. So that's not fair either. Once you can actually see that there's a setup, then invite him to something concrete. That, you know, uncle, Hamza, this masjid at this time, this person, he teaches Tazweed, he teaches Nazareth, he teaches Qaeda, and I've spoken to him, you know, the nice relatives, he says he's going to give this time, uncle, why don't you go? So set it up beforehand, then your invitation will also carry more weight. Instead of simply saying, oh, you should go read Quran, and then where should I go, which should I do? Right? So what you're responsible for is that, is setting it up for and giving them a confidence. But if you do all that, that will touch that person's heart. That, look, my nephew or my grandson or whatever it is, he took so much time, he went around, he found a teacher, he researched who are the people teaching it, what are their times, and he's inviting with me so much love. So if that person loves you, then you should use the love that that person has. Right? We use the love that people have for us to get things in the dunya. Right? We use that our father has a soft spot for us, we hit him up for a new cell phone. A mother has a soft spot for us. We hit her up for $20 when we leave the house, right? We invoke the love they have for us to get our dunya. Rather, we should invoke the love they have for us to make them follow the deen. That's our job. Ku anfusakum wa ahlikum nara. command in the Quran that you must save yourselves and your ahl from the hellfire. So it is a responsibility. No, the, the agent of revelation was Jabal Islam. It's not like somehow some birds came floating down from the sky from the law of Mahfuz. But it just means that almost it's like it's just like writing, huh? When the tour writes a CD, right? The whole thing is on the hard drive. Gradually in blocks it gets written. I'm just talking about how the Mus'haf, the written copy here was assembled, right? The portions of that were revealed, were brought by Jabal Islam, but then gradually the copies started being made here, eventually until the time that this copy was full and it was in accordance with the law of Mahfuz. But the agent or the means of revelation was to reveal Islam, except in a few small instances of other types of revelation. I think that stuff should be covered in miracles of revelation. I don't know, but you can all listen to uh, that to be said. You know, not necessarily. Uh, not necessarily. In fact, sometimes I think there's an overemphasis on the Arabic language. Uh, because... It, you know, somebody might spend, you know, I happen to know people like that who spent years, you know, sometimes they spent one summer, there's one person I know, they spent one summer in, I don't know, Syria or Yemen, and they spent another summer in Sudan, and they still, you know, you know, they spent a summer in Pakistan, and they still didn't really properly know the Arabic language. So if you have, the, if the knowledge of the Quran is available in your language, 
uh, and you don't have the time, that's the highest level, right, to first learn Arabic, do it in the original language. But if you don't think you have that time or, or, or that access, then it's fine. You can study it in Urdu, depending on Urdu, Tafasir. In English, I mentioned English, and inshallah, Allah is increasing the work in English. Uh, so that's okay. It's okay if you're not able to study in Arabic, it's okay. Arabic is not Farz and Wajib. The knowledge of Arabic individually is not Farz and Wajib upon a person. Uh, but to know and understand at least the basics of the Quran is Farz on you. And like I suggest for those people in America who are people of knowledge, uh, although Sharan, I can't say it's Farz on you, but it's very, very highly recommended and I think and highly essential for you to preserve your Iman that you understand the meanings and the messages of Allah. And it's something you will enjoy. It's not something that you're not going to enjoy. You will really feel the light of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You will feel the power of the scene when you do that. And you can get that light, you can get that power, alhamdulillah, through other languages. This is the ihsan of our ulama on us who uh, trans, uh, transmitted these Quranic sciences into other languages. So it's fine if you want to pick up and, and, and read an Urdu tafsir or English tafsir, it's fine. Or go to Urdu darsa. I mean, you can do it all in Urdu. You can have the teachers in Urdu, darsas in Urdu, the tarjumas in Urdu, the tafsirs in Urdu, the cassettes in Urdu, the CDs in Urdu. No problem. No problem. But the tilawah should still be in Arabic. You should still read the Arabic. That your connection with the Arabic original, the alfaz of Quran, should always be there. And then what we'll do is we'll, and those who want to continue with their schedule of Ibad and sleep can do so. And those who had the leftover questions from yesterday, from last night, they can ask them now. They're definitely true that a person should not harm his body, he should not be a source of harming other people. Uh, and you know, that might suggest a person to think that it's haram. Uh, but there are some reasons why the fuqaha falls short of declaring it as haram. Uh, but smoking is definitely something that, in general, then even leaving outside the technical fix, ruling of it, is something that I think people should try to stop doing. It's not a healthy thing, it's not a noble thing. Right? The Muslims are supposed to be the noblest of people on this earth. So if nothing else, anybody would agree that smoking is not a noble act. It's not a noble habit. It's not a praiseworthy act. So being a Muslim is all about being pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, being noble in His eyes, being a noble representative of humanity on earth. I've heard that there are people giving a commentary on it that it's for the Munafiqin. 
the Tafsir Khas of that ayah is about the Kufar, Barazan, that they had a sickness that enabled them to accept Iman. Right? Yeah. That's the Mahal or that's the specific Tafsir. But many of the of the opinion that ayahs like that, that can have an al meaning, of a general meaning, you can take the general meaning from them, because it establishes that the reason why they were unable to accept Iman was that there was some disease in their hearts, some sickness in their hearts. That then shows you that the hearts can be diseased or sick, right? So that means that if you have something wrong, you have some level of nifaq, you have some hidden shirk, just like the greater shirk is due to some disease in the heart, so can the lesser shirk be due to disease. And there are other eyes where Allah Taala mentions, for example, that do not follow that person whose heart we have made devoid of our remembrance, right? Now that's not necessarily cause from the kufar. Right. Uh, in contrast, then you could look at good eyes about the heart. That the mu'minin, what Allah describes the character of the mu'minin, uh, that when the name of Allah is mentioned, their hearts quiver, tremble, shiver in remembrance. So it shows that the heart, there are many ayahs that show that the heart is a seat of goodness or badness. So if you can just imagine like that, that if our hearts are not trembling or shivering when Allah's name is mentioned, it means that we must have some sickness in our heart. need to make a sort of pray for the shark anyway. Yeah, fine. But he should just go and just make wudu and come back on the way to wudu on the way back from wudu. Also, also warn the people in Takaf when you, well, again, I'm still unclear actually what the hudud of the masjid are, but I'm assuming that obviously when you go to make wudu, you must be leaving the hudud, right? So I try not to talk to one another on the way or the way back. So much so that technically you don't have to give salam in such an instance. Uh, unless it's somebody who's visiting or you're just seeing them for the first time. But if it's somebody you're seeing ten times a day anyway, uh, in that case, for the person who's at the cough, you don't need to offer salam. If somebody does say salam, return it. But you don't need to initiate salam if you're a multi-kif when you just happen to run into somebody for the nth time in the day on your way uh, going to make with it. Like, how do you define the rule of the masjid? Uh, that's the mutawali of the masjid defines the hudud. So the hayanka will tell you what the hudud are. Okay. Okay. Just like that. Okay. Mashallah. and money. Yeah.
And, you know, I've read one opinion on this, and I've also heard that there are multiple opinions. So I'll offer the opinion to you that I've read because I know that it came from a qualified mufti, right? But you might want to look into what those other opinions are, okay? So the opinion that I read is that you don't have to make sajda on that. If you are listening to a Quran recitation, uh, and I sajda comes on the CD or tape, you don't have to make uh, sajda for listening to that. If you're listening to it live, you would have to. But listening to it on Quran, and, and it's very interesting because this whole issue has a lot of masail that come from it. I'll just show you a little bit, just, a little, just to show you a little bit how sometimes fiqh works, right? Is that this issue has a lot of masail involved in it. Because that's why there were some fuqaha, right? Although it's a minority, there are some fuqaha who said you shouldn't pray with a loudspeaker. Because the person who is out of the earshot of the imam, so he hears the Allah come from the speaker, that's not valid. Right? And one of the re- and sometimes they would argue in this way, that when, if you people say, and they would say to the other group of ulama, right? And then that's why, by the way, there is ijtihad on new masail like this. There is a back and forth discussion amongst fuqaha on new things like this. Even the use of a loudspeaker, which is something mean you may have taken for granted, that that's totally fine. They look into everything. So th- that one group said that, well, look, if you say you don't have to make sense of tilawa based on what you hear in the speaker, right? Forget the live issue, right? If you hear in a tape, because you say it's not real, it's, it's, the, it's the voice of the, of the machine. So then how can that person then be expected to move, change his rukun and salah based on the voice of the machine, of the magnetic sort of, what they call the magnetic, what do they call it? Resonance. None of the thing. Magnetic resonance, whatever, that speaker, that, that cloth, right? Vibration. <laughs> okay. The magnetic vibration that comes from the speaker, right? So then, but the other ulama said, no, that has to do with real time. That that is real time, right? Because that's real time, what he's listening to is an ux, a real time ux of the takbir of the imam <coughs> that is just being transmitted to him. Right? And some of them then also use the example of the mukabbir. That in the olden days, before there were speakers, there'd be somebody in the fifth row who would say, Allah Akbar, somebody in the tenth row would say, Allah Akbar. So he was also actually a means of transmitting the voice of the imam so this is a new scientific technological way of transiting the voice of the imam. Just like that that mukabbar's voice was an ux or a mirror or a reflection of the imam's voice, just like that we should treat the speaker as a reflection of the imam's voice. That's what the majority of the Muslims say is perfectly fine that for a person who's out of earshot of the imam, that he can follow the imam based on what he hears in the speaker. Right? And the same issue of ux comes as far as simultaneous video or would you have your virtual blackboard or simultaneous video transmission goes. Right? That because as long as it's not being recorded, then it's just ox. Right? Do you see things like that? The Fokaha, they take thousands of things out of these things. So by and large, the opinion that I'm familiar with is that you don't need to make sense that when you hear that in I, on CD or on tape. But if you hear it live, even if you hear it from the speaker, you would have to make it. Much one sense. Yeah. So it means if you are like watching the like Tarawi from the Kaaba TV, yeah, it's mainly recorded, so you don't have to do exactly when you use that. Yeah, no, you don't. You don't have to. Because yeah. it's recorded, that's one of the. the yeah. Even if it's not live. No, and that is an interesting thing. If, even if that was live, you wouldn't have to. Right. So the other thing the Fukuha have what they call Ittihad Majlis, that you're part of that same gathering. So you are not 
although you're listening to that, right, it's being live by satellite into your bedroom, you're listening to that eye, but you're not, you're not, it's not ittihad, you're not actually part of that mantalist. You're not really in that gathering, right? That gathering is being transmitted to you via some technology, but you're not considered part of that gathering. And you can just answer that yourself. If you were in that mudzis, then you should be just praying behind the imam there, right? I mean, if you were part of that mudzis, then you should be praying. It's the very fact that you're not, you, you know that it's not permissible to pray behind an imam. Forget the time difference. Let's say it was in the same time zone that you were in Dubai and watching it, right? Uh, you still wouldn't be able to pray behind the imam, even though it is your isha time, because you're not in that same mudzis. So, uh, just like your iqtida, you're following that imam via video, live video feed, would not be valid just like that, then you're just, you don't have to make the such as that when you listen to I. So, like, maybe I missed your first answer. You said, if I if I hear something on, on the loudspeaker, uh, then I'm not liable of doing the rest of the week. No, 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 you do. Let, let's, let's say somebody's here reciting Quran, and you're sitting in the back room, and you're listening to the speaker. Yeah. You're live. You're part of this gathering, because you're in this area, you're in this vicinity, Right? And you would have to make. Okay, what if I'm outside in the parking lot? I still hear it. I'm the, I'm like a yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that's a good question. But from what I know, you would have to. Yeah, but that's like tentative. That's tentative. You know, you are sitting in yeah. the bedroom and you hear yeah. the big loudspeaker yeah. right, like you know, five yeah. minutes foot from your house. You know, you're just like well, no, well, that's why normally the Qur'an, well, I've seen in Pakistan, well, I, I've attended many Mephilic out there. They don't recite any passage of the Qur'an that has ayah such as that when they do it. You know, because then the whole gather. I mean, yeah, they don't. Do they do? They deliberately don't. But if yeah. they do, then you're liable to be Technically, if they did, yeah, that would be an interesting question. If you listen to it at your home, right? If they're, that, that would be. Yeah, that, we'd you, have to look into that. Because if you're liable to do it, then then you're liable to do it on uh, live function also. Because the same as if you're 500 feet from the large speaker or you're 5,000 miles from the, the large speaker, doesn't matter. You are still in the same session. Live going on. I don't know, you can just look at it and, and yeah. let us know whenever you have time. Yeah. Well, I won't be able to look at that. You'd have to ask one of your local scholars that question. And what you really need to ask, let me just, because actually everything you've asked has been answered except one thing. Yeah. So you should just ask this. That if I'm standing in the parking lot and yeah. this place has tarawih, just say it's tarawih, right? <coughs> and that they recite an ayah with a says and I listen to it in the parking lot. Right? Then do I have, is such a wajib on me or not? Yeah, because as we define this mosque is only like, like, like these three rooms, right? Yeah. Uh, so outside these three rooms, I'm not in the mosque. Just ask the question and so I'll see what answer you get. And then you can define, you can say what the hadoos were and see what it was. You know, like somebody like Mufti Nawal Rahman or some other scholar that you know and trust I in Chicago. I have one more question. You, you're sure. mentioning something about Quran and I think somebody asked me, you know, there some ayah taken out and put it back. Uh, the first compiled uh, like Quran Majid was Mushaf, right? So what is the what is the big difference between Mushaf and the one before Mushaf? Mushaf? Yeah, the Mushaf is money. Yeah. So uh, the first uh, uh, you know, the first one was compiled uh, is the one we have right now. And the one before it, was is there any difference between these two or this no, one? No, no, no. This was basically just... So, so then why do we have to compile it? No, uh, uh, you can look at it this way. That, and this is what I'm saying, these are the type of things that we need to have these books so we can learn and study these things. Sure. It's precisely why I tell people they should build a small Islamic library because if you have questions like that, 
uh, you should be able to go to a book and get the answer. You should have the books that have answers to those questions, these questions, so you can look them up. Internet is like I surprised you in a minute. Internet is like uh, I call the internet the Starfleet computer <laughs> because it has everything in it. You know, it's everything. I was shocked when I came back and looking up something about baby stuff on the internet, and I was amazed at the amount of things that I found on there. Uh, what it is is that the, before the most of this money, uh, the building was compiled, right? Uh, you can imagine that there were some katibi uh, nubai, some of the sahaba who were designated as the scribes, the recorders of the wahi. So they had recorded it on different types, some on parchment, some on leaf, and different ways of recording it, right? And then what happened was at that time, well, one katib, he had his own copy, another katib had his own copy, right? were some other sahaba who weren't taught to bin wahi sometimes they would write certain verses. So there were different people who had different amounts, right? And that, that in the very early years of Islam, the sahaba didn't feel the need to have the whole written record. Like every sahaba did not feel the need to have the whole written thing in his home. That's the same thing, to have the whole written Quran in his home, right? But then when they decided, when they saw that some hafaz or shaheed and this whole work of Jamal Quran, uh, Quran, to, to gather the Qur'an, to propagate the Qur'an, to spread the Qur'an, right, started. So what they decided then is that rather than letting certain Sahaba have certain amounts of the Qur'an, what we should do is we should gather together all the Qatibin of Wahi. They should compare their notes, right, and it turned out that their notes were identical, right? So then what they should simply do is that they should put, make one master copy, and then everybody else should just give up whatever little pieces they have, and they can just sort of make copies of this master copy. So this master copy, Mustafa Usmani, I think seven, if I'm correct, were made and sent to different parts of the world. This is sort of a master record. And then after that, then all copies were then made from that. So the order, the things are in the order it was revealed, or the order compiled mm-hmm. the Yeah, 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 yeah. That's why, in fact, uh, well, we're supposed to do this tomorrow, but I'll just mention it now because I guess it's related to Quran. That's one of the proofs of Hadith. The Quran itself has many proofs of Hadith in it. One of it is the physical arrangement of the Quran. Because if there's somebody out there who says, I deny Hadith altogether, then he can't read this Muslim. Right? Because nowhere in the Quran itself does it say, you won't find the Quran itself saying, Fatah comes first, Fakrah comes second. There's no verses of Quran that have the order in them the whole thirteen of the Quran came from Hadith, come from a different type of wahi, what we call wahi ghayr matlu, or the unrecited wahi, the way that Allah inspired the Prophet Muhammad So the very physical musaf that you have is living, or is as a living testament, or is proof that Allah did reveal other things to Prophet Muhammad other than simply, or not simply, but other than the words of the revelation. So upon the wahi, the Prophet tomorrow. So. Tomorrow morning after Fajr. Does this allow? There's one of the last on it, right? We don't have it. Yeah. 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 
Well, what, each one you have to do separately. You want to do one for all, read the whole Quran and just do it once? No. You want to do a sajda for the mukhtalafi one? You know, technically speaking, it's not it's not impermissible. Let me try to answer that way. It would not be impermissible to do that. <laughs> this this type of appropriateness depends more on a person's tabiat, right? If a person feels that he wants to make something like <coughs> just in case, it's fine. Jive. Hundred percent jive. Hundred percent second. And if a person studies feels that he doesn't need to do it, that he agrees with the delay or he trusts in the scholarship that this doesn't an eye says this, it's hundred percent jive for him not to do it. He's praying what? Uh-huh. Uh, if he wants to, he can make it up. Yeah. No, 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 no. See, yeah, there won't be. This is a technical thing. This would be. His first salah would be considered if he did it properly, right? I mean, he did that says it the or he did the estimation or whatever he did, he did that part right. That's a separate thing that he feels bad that he had to do that, right? So that first salah would be his adha'ifar, and the second would be what we call i'ada. Because there's a principle in Hanafi fiqh that if you do anything that's makru tahimi in your salah, then according to some ulama, the i'ada of that is wajib. The i'ada of that is wajib. But what you're saying that's not makru, I shouldn't mix it to you. I mean, what you're saying is not makru, what you're saying is your own shock. So what you would make the intention in that, like you would say, oh Allah, I make intention to pray, let's say it was Zohar, right? So I make intention to pray the most recent Zohar Salah that is due upon me. So let's say that one didn't count, it would be that one. Otherwise, if that one counted, it would be some other kazal that you might have messed up sometime in your life or missed sometime in your life. And if you're one of those people who Allah, don't have any Zohar, any salat that you're new, then it would just automatically be converted into nafas. That's sort of the default niya in salat, that it will be converted into nafas. That's why you have to make niya when you make salat, as opposed to wudu, right? If you make wudu without niya, it still counts. But you have to make your niya in salat, because otherwise it will revert to the default, which is nafas. There's no niya in wudu. You make wuzu, you can do everything. You can read Quran, you can pray Salah, you can... There's no niya in wuzu. You can't make your wuzu mukayyad. You can't qualify that this is a wuzu for Quran. Something like that. You make wuzu, even if you do wuzu unknowingly, you take a shower and you have to end up washing as far as places, then that means you're in a state of wuzu. You can read Quran, you can pray Salah, uh, you can do all the things that require wuzu. You know, front and the Okay, middle, then front, then back. Do you have to verbalize your intention? No, no, you don't have to verbalize. Intention is a matter of the heart. But the only reason some people verbalize it is because they're worried they'll forget, right? So it's 100% permissible to verbalize it if you want to, but don't think it's sunnah. 
It's just something that's permissible. You're just doing it as a reminder for yourself. The true intention is in your heart. And if you know you have the intention in your heart, you're aware of what it is that you're about to do. That's what it means. And when you stand up today, you were aware that what you were praying was the two accounts of Fajr. You were aware of that in your heart. If you know you're confident that you have that awareness, it's 100% permissible not to say it with your tongue. Does the woman sitting behind the imam have to make meditation? Yes, he has to make niyat that he's meeting women also. Otherwise, the imam still makes sound? Yeah, I mean, in the Hanafi, the imam has to make niyat. So it's just easier that the imam, every time he makes niyat, he should make niyat imam of everything. Men, women, jinn, everything. Niyah is not required in wudu. Uh, you can't make niyah specifically like in the sense of saying that I'm making niyah. You can make niyah of wudu. You can't make, you can say that, oh, you know, in your heart, you, and you are aware when you make wudu normally, and that's better. Niyah is sunnah, put it that way in wudu, right? But the niyah that is sunnah is of mutlaq wudu. Simply that I'm making wudu. Not that I'm making wudu to read Quran, and therefore then because you made that niyah, you come, you can't pray salah. Yeah. Not like that. Zohar, and I made, I thought I was praying Zohar. I have an answer to that. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I know, I just like to invite, I know if you the answer you were, No, I know if you were volunteering to give an answer, it would have been the answer that you took from somebody. That's why I told you to go ahead. You don't have to tell me, I trust you. I asked her that, you know, I was standing up for Asa, and just, I verbalized the heart. But Hazrat just said, if you, if you were stand, if you knew you were standing up, this and preparing for Asa, you knew you were preparing for Asa, and you, and so it's in the end of your heart, you knew in your heart you were preparing for Asa, so that would count. And that's fine, that's a bit of a different question though. Because the actual knee is on the heart. So that is true. That's a separate thing if anybody... And maybe maybe you were caught up in that, but I think your question is a bit different. That if a person in their heart knows that he's praying usher, but he has this habit, and that's why some people say maybe some people shouldn't make knee with their tongue. If he has this habit of making knee with his tongue and in his tongue he slips out zohar, that's fine as knee accounts. But I think his question might be in his heart he actually was intending, he thought it was zohar time, right? but it was actually usher. So that would be a bit different. He made us a lot of sweats. Yeah. Oh, during Salah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. I have an idea, but I don't know 100% for sure, so where did he go? Uh, in, in Salah. Are you in Itikaf? Okay. I'll tell you before the time of Itikaf ends. I just answered my question. Oh, that's what you were thinking. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, we should handle the answer to that also. So ask me on Wednesday. Him or anybody else remember to ask me the question on Wednesday and so on. Uh, when we're asking forgiveness from Allah, do we have to verbalize it or can we just, I mean, say to Allah, that Allah? And you can say it from your heart, it's fine. In fact, the Prophet said in the hadith, that simply nadma, simply nadama, simply remorse and regret, that is tawbah. So sometimes simply the remorse and regret you feel in your heart, that becomes tawbah. So it's fine, you can say it. So when somebody says, you know, can you make du'a for me, this and that? Do we have to, you don't have to actually say it, that's where we just kind of say it from the heart. Du'a is different. The first question was on toba. Yeah. Toba can be something that's done from the heart. Du'a is normally something that's done with the tongue because that is a similar way of making du'a from your tongue. But you can also, in a sense, right, we won't call that formal du'a, but in a sense you can make du'a for that person in your heart. Right? Okay. First and then second. Yeah, actually, I have two questions. <coughs> My first question is about the khutbah during Juma. Hmm. Like, basically, when you're in khutbah, you're basically supposed to stay quiet. You're not even supposed to return salam or anything like that. And my main question towards that is when the imam does dua while khutbah, I see some people raising their hands for dua and some people not. And when he finishes each dua, each I see some people saying Amin and some people not saying Amin. Yeah, good question. So my question is, am I supposed to raise my hand and am I supposed to say Amin? Or would that go against the khutbah? Okay, and that's the second question. And the second question is post. It's totally different. I can ask you that. Okay. Uh, see, in, in the Hanafi, the, the du'a that is sunnah to do at the end of the khutbah, we'll put it as this for him for It's sunnah to make some type of du'a end of the khutbah, right, towards the end of the khutbah, right? So, from the Hanafi mother, we view that du'a is part of the khutbah. So, because we view that du'a is part of the khutbah, 
That's why we don't say Amin, because just like when a person makes Salah in Salah, right? For example, if somebody in Fajr Salah recites the last few ayahs of Surah Baqarah, right? So we don't start saying Amin, or we don't raise our hands in that, right? Because even though they're the words of Dua, he's reciting those Dua as Tilawah, as recitation. But just like that, in Hanafi Mazda, that when the Khatib makes those Dua, he's reciting them as Khutbah, right? So you can say Amin in your heart if you want to, which means silently, right? Like you might do that in your Salah also. But that's why we don't raise our hands. Some other schools of fiqh say no, that the khutbah is ended and this is something else. This is a dua, just dua. It's not part of the khutbah. So just like in that case, like in other duas, you raise your hand and you say, Amin. That's why those people raise their hand and say, Amin. Actually, the real difference is, is that what is that dua? Is it part of the khutbah or not? So the Hanafi fiqh, again, also because in the Hanafi fiqh, uh, we believe that the khutbah is the qaim maqam or is the replacement of two rakahs of salah. In other words, the zuhr was four rakahs. Jummah is two because they're two sunnah khutbah. So we view the khutbah has the, is the mandal of the salah or has the place of salah. So just like if du'a is recited in salah, you don't say ameen, right? If somebody recites an ayah of any du'a, you know, Rabbana, Atana, Fidunia, Hasanatah, Wasal, Akhrat, Yasanatah, Wakin, Adamas, Ayah of Qur'an. If somebody recites that part of Qur'an in salah, we don't raise our hand and say ameen during the salah. So because in the Hanafi fiqh, the khutbah is like a replacement of the salah, it carries the same hukum as salah. That's why we don't raise our hands in du'a. We don't say ameen, like you mentioned. We won't respond to a person's salah and we won't talk. Because that's how we view the Arabic khutbah. So other fuqaha don't view it that way. They view it that salah was reduced to two and the khutbah is just a speech. And at the end of that speech, after the khutbah, there's a du'a. And so just like when we at the end of the speech make a du'a, people raise their hands and say ameen. Just like that, when the khatib ends the speech and makes du'a, other people should say ameen. From my knowledge, there is no hadith from my knowledge, it's very limited, right? But it's just something for you to think about or for something you to search or to ask people. Uh, but there's no hadith that says that the Sahaba used to raise their hand and say, and say Ameen in, during the khutbah, right? And that's not proof that they didn't, but there's no real hadith that suggests that. But, again, you, but, you, but if people do it, it's fine because they're following valid, qualified concepts, so you should tell them not to do it. Second question. Yeah, and my second question. Uh, at night, me and uh, a couple of brothers were having a long conversation concerning the situation. And one of my brothers actually wanted to ask a question. They kind of tried to come up. But it was concerning for school, actually cleaning yourself or, I should say, taking a shower. So we were talking long about this, that while you're taking a shower, you're actually supposed to take a shower in short. Not so when we use the word supposed to, right? So supposed to, when we translate that into Sharia, that means fars or wajib. No, it's not fars or wajib to take a shower in short, right? It's part of our haya, of our modesty, right? That there, uh, a person out of haya might think that, okay, I never want to be naked even in the shower. I will wear some type of shorts, boxers, swimming trunks, what have you even in the shower, but it's not required. Mm-hmm. It's not required to do that. It's not first, it's not wajib to do that. So again, to put it in other words, it's 100% permissible, 100% permissible to take a shower in the bus. Yeah. But it is also 100% permissible <coughs> if a person feels out of modesty, right? If he feels ashamed, exposing his private part. And let me just add one thing here. But for those of us who have difficulty having haya, 
and this is one thing, uh, one, that's an unscheduled talk we're going to have for the young men about controlling the gaze and taming your nose. I don't know when that's going to be. One of the things that we mentioned in that is that, uh, is this, is that some young men, I'm going to speak openly also to show you, you shouldn't have Hayan asking questions. Some young men are too bold in the bathroom in the sense that they have no problem staying naked for too long. They even look at their private part longer than they should. I'm being very serious here. And that is one thing that leads you to misdirect your gaze. So if a person feels one of the, one of the many tips and tools that our ulama and shirk have taught us about controlling your gaze is this, is that you should have more haya. Spend the minimum amount of time in the bathroom. Don't expose that part of your body unless it's absolutely necessary. Have some haya with yourself. Have some haya before Allah. Maybe Allah will put the seeds of haya and modesty in you and will help you to control your gaze. Okay, one, two, uh, one, two, three, four. Do you, do you have a point or something else? No, I actually have a question. Okay, so we'll let him go first. Because um, you have some rights on that. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, this was actually uh, concerning the question that Michael raised about uh, making the effort of women because I think it's very critical as a matter of women's salah being accepted or not. So, um, is this saying that we should tell our women, we should preach that, that women should not join in uh, a jamaat unless they are sure that the imam uh, has made niya for them? And what about set up some other which women have been included, but they aren't always there? The thing is that you can't tell the women that because how do the women know who's the imam? How many, and questions like this, I think there's no muta'ayin imam, right? Different people lead the salah, so how can the women know who is leading a man that near? So there is a solution to this, but the solution is ne- never, never disturb the women. The solution is to work on the imam. That there should be maybe five, six, seven, eight, however many people there are designated to lead the prayer, number one, number two, the naib, the naib, the naib. But they should all be aware of this masala, that at least in Hanafi fiqh, right, that, and I don't know, this could be the case in other madhaib, I don't know, I haven't studied the other madhaib on this issue, what their view is. It could very well be according to all four madhaib. Allahumma, I don't know. But in the Hanafi faith, that the imam has to have niya that he's leading women. Right? So the solution then just lies again in the intizam of the committee or the mutawalli of the masjid making sure that the imams know that. And just doing that and not trying to get in the nitty-gritty of the fact because a lot of people don't like this. This is one of the issues in fact that's difficult to swallow. Oh, what's this? The women are praying, they're praying salah, they made niya. What's this type of thing you made necessary that the imam also had me of the women? Then you're going to go say that their women's salah was invalid and you're going to nullify their salah. People get very worried about these things. That's why I don't go into them too much in depth. The simple solution is just to be like, look, our job as sincere slaves and servants of Allah, especially in terms of our salah and tahara, is to do everything to the utmost precaution. So if there is a possibility that this legal school is correct, that women's salah might not be accepted, so why should we take that chance? Very simple. We should just tell all the imams for the people who lead that they should make sure that they have a niya. So whether women are there or not, there's no need to know, to check, for the women to know, for us to know. Everybody should always have that niya. There's one actually thing that happens here by default, which is, I think, very good, that uh, people are reminded that, yeah, do use the, the, the loudspeaker because of women also. There's sort mm-hmm. of, like, imply that the imam is making a niya that, yeah, he's using the... Yeah, the, the that could also be looked at. If the imam picks up the microphone for the for the sole reason, even if he doesn't know of this masala, but if he picks up the microphone with the intention that women are also going to be listening, that means he's aware that he's meeting women, and niya is actually the name of awareness, right? In this sense. I mean, it's lovely man's intention. 
if he's aware that he's leading women when he starts the salam, then that would count as the same. No, he doesn't have to know whether they're not. Okay. If he picks up the microphone so that if they're there, right. if they're they can follow him, yeah. because so then, he's then in the mic so they can hear his takbir. Right. The reason that you put the mic is so that they can hear his takbir. Why does he want them to hear his takbir so that they can follow him? What so whether they're there or not, he doesn't need to know. Yeah, it doesn't need to know. It doesn't matter. Whether the imam knows, it doesn't matter. And whether they're in actual still walk here, if they're there or not, that also doesn't matter. Either, either way, it doesn't matter. Okay, I gave numbers. You guys keep track. Who was is, who is supposed to be? Who was one before Kash? Who was you? Okay. Um, I was told earlier that you If there's a person who's missed five or less prayers in his life, and he's what they call Sahib al that means he's missed such few prayers in his life that it's better for him that he should keep the order of his salah. So, for example, if you've only missed four prayers in your life, then you should make those four up, because it doesn't take that long to make up up to five, right? It would take maybe 10, 20 minutes, right? So you should make them up in the order that they are due upon you, and then resume praying them. <coughs> for the vast majority of people who oh, more than that, right, more than five prayers, uh, then for them that their, their team is ordered, the order, the sequence of their salah doesn't matter. So let's say you, you know, you owe one year of salah in your life. Uh, you don't have to wait to make up that entire year to pray fajr. And if on that same day you miss fajr, you overslept for fajr, you can still come and pray zohar. You don't have to make up the, that day's fajr before you pray zohar. That's only for those people. For a person overslept Fajr, before he prays Zohar, he should make up his Fajr if he's what we call Sahib Tertib, if he's that person who has five or less Salah that are due upon him in the entire span of his life. Who is number two? Yeah. Because niyyah in salah is required in ada when you actually should have done it, therefore niyyah intention is also required in qaza when you make it up. So the way for a person to make up their qaza salah in general is as follows, that you should estimate how many salah you owe from the time you became Muslim or from the time you, if you were uh, born and raised Muslim, from the time you became mature, physically you attained puberty. You should, and you might not remember that time, right? So you should generally estimate what that time was. Maybe you can say it was when you were 12 years old, when you were 13 years old, whatever you can generally estimate. And then track how many, and then when you started praying Salah, right? And then so tabulate how many prayers you owe. Then think that from the time you started praying to the time you started praying regularly, right? And again, generally estimate that irregular prayers, how many you used to miss, maybe you missed but or more, right? Try to estimate generously, then you come up with a list, right? So you make a sort of little spreadsheet or however you want to do it, you have a list of how many salahs you owe. So now there are two intentions you can make. Either you can make up those salah working backward or working forward. Working backward would mean that you make intention for every salah, Ya Allah, make intention. In your heart, you have to say it, but if you want to say it, 
you would say, Ya Allah, make intention to pray the most recent Zohar Kazam farz that are due upon me. Because you're not going to remember the days, right? So whatever it is, let's say there's this many, right? There's a stack of them. You pray the recent one, this goes on. Next time you pray, the recent one is now this one, right? Another one has come up, is now now the most recent. So each and every time you keep knocking them off, there's always the most recent. Or you can make, you can do them backwards, uh, forwards. You can make me the Ola, I make intention to pray the very first Gaza of the Zohar's first Salah that is due upon me. So you would be taking them out from the body. No, no. New Muslims only from the moment they became Muslim, not from the moment they were. So if a person accepts a psalm at 16, he doesn't have to make up any psalm. If after he accepted a psalm at 16, there's something that he has to make up. And then again, the reason you need to make a record is because you need to start ticking them off so you know when you're done. Go ahead. If you want to, you can. Any way you want. Some people do that, they pray one kaza. Know that kaza salah, you can pray any time, except at the times of sunrise, sunset, and high noon, zawal. Right? Tadu'ishams, zawal'ishams, and gurubishams. You can pray kaza between Asr and Maghrib. You can pray kaza after the fars of Fajr. No problem. Yeah, you have to make kaza with it also. And that, that with it would only if uh, you must make, well, get that, but you have to make uh, kaza of the ishan with it together. So whenever you make kaza of ishan, make sure you do the kaza of that with it as well. Yeah, if you want, you can do it before the with You can do the kaza after the with You can pray after with your salam, by the way. You can pray after, you can pray kaza salam, you can pray nafal salam after the with salam. Is that a question on Kazar or something? Okay. So. For example, like, uh, I have a question Omar said this morning uh, about, for example, like how we do a lot together, right? So, like, using that same concept of you can build on something lesser with, some, uh, with something greater. For example, like if someone's now in respect to Khada, if people are, someone's reading in Jama'a uh, four Fars uh, Asr, right? Uh, can you go behind them and read your Khada? Or oh, only enough yeah. for Oh, yeah. Because kaza is not any less. Kaza is also wajib refers upon you. And then in order to have iqtada within the faraiz and wajibat, there must be ishtaraq and niyat. He's making niyat for today and you're making niyat for your whatever, the first one or the most recent one. You can't do that. You have to make the kaza and the kaza. Okay, first him. He, he might have meant for that day or something. He said you can only pray the Fajr Kazai Umri that you have. Right. Um, in the time after the Fajr Fars. Uh, and same for Asr. Right? After the Asr Fars, uh, the time until sunset, you can only use this great Kazai Umri. Maybe it's something new on here. I, I remember that you could be with Muslak, but maybe he had an opinion. Right? Okay. 
you know, sometimes what happens is to do further to speak, right, and the prohibition. So this, they sort of strike a medium ground from Pukahok. That, okay, well, we'll only allow it for that time because there's still some mushabiyat that is just for your time. Right? But there is the opinion that it's mismuk, so we'll just leave it at that. There's no need to give multiple opinions. Okay. Four months. Four months. Four months. One hundred twenty days. Four months. Yeah. Yeah. It's your first trimester abortion. Uh, there are some contemporary. So there's some contemporary Muslim speakers who say that first trimester abortion. <laughs> Don't laugh in the front seat. And there's some contemporary Muslim speakers who think, and there are some contemporary Muslim scholars who think that first trimester abortions are okay using this rule. So it depends on what we call zarf and masruf. What is a human being? Because certainly our ruh, our spirit, is something that is unique to us. But this embryo, this jasad, this jism is also something that's uniquely human. It's not like that that embryo or that fetus which was three months old is something not human. So the majority of the fuqaha define that the human being is both the physical and the spiritual. So once the physical is created, that's why abortion is not permitted because abortion means infanticide. It's a sort of a new technological way of infanticide. In earlier times, they used to bury their like female children uh, in babies, they used to bury their female babies alive, right? So there have been some people who, because, and, and, and this is something I forgot to mention in Tafsir, there's quite a few things I left out. That one thing in, in Tafsir Birai, what is the sign of this Tafsir Birai? Because Allah does command you in Quran to do tafakkur, that you're supposed to reflect. So one sign of Tafsir Birai is that it's coming from your Ra'i, it's not coming from uh, tafakkur, is, it's not coming from reflection, it's coming from your own opinion, your whims and desires is that you have your own ideology, your own view, and you're making the Qur'an tabe, or you're making the Qur'an follow-up subservient to your view. So, for example, a person who already, for maybe his own leftist political philosophy, or because he was a liberal before he accepted Islam, or for whatever reason, he thinks that first his, his philosophy, his, maybe you can even say his heart, maybe he's sincere, but he thinks for any number of reasons that first trimester abortion should be okay, and now he starts searching the Qur'an. Well, where can I find a way to make this okay in Islam? That's the fear of Bilai. To make the Qur'an tabi to your own worldview, to your own philosophy, to your own ideology. So that's what happens is that some people, when they're confronted with this, uh, and they are, I mean, again, intellectually speaking, some arguments that might seem legitimate to allow first trimester abortion. So those people then follow their intellect and they start searching Qur'an and they came up with this ayah. Well, then because Allah doesn't uh, breathe the ruh, or the ruh is breathed, the spirit is breathed, into the body at four months, well, then that means we can do it before four months, right? But actually, the understanding of the fukaha, and that's why even after you die, right? Let's look at another case of when the body is separated from the ruh. Even after you die, your ruh left, your body has so much ikram. We view it as a human. That's why we don't burn our bodies. We don't cremate our bodies. There's no cannibalism in Islam. Why is cannibalism forbidden? If somebody could say they use the same, use the same reasoning, do the same kiyas, that well, the ruh is gone. And the essence of humanity is in the ruh. Well, this person, the ruh is gone. He's not a human being. Why can't you eat it? 
So Allah SWT has said that the human body is mukarram, is honest, is noble, whether it's a corpse, whether it's a fetus, whether it's an embryo, whether it's anything. Right? And that again, getting back to our favorite topic of controlling the gaze, is that when we waste that human sperm that we have, we're actually disgracing humanity. Because that is one of the parts of the beginning of the conception of humanity. So that's another sin that we get when we do certain things that we're not supposed to do. Uh, but inshallah, we will have a very open, X-rated <laughs> session on this. And that's maybe why it will be <laughs> unannounced. <laughs> because these things need to be dealt with openly because many people have uh, these problems. So the, the by and large, the ulama have not accepted that argument that because the ruh is breathed at four months, it's okay to have the first trimester of Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's okay to pray the kaza that you have in your life, except at three times. When the sun rises, which if you look at your timetable where it says to Louis Shams or sometimes it says sunrise, take that time and add 15 minutes to it, right? And then the time of Zawal, which that's another big issue of astronomy, but, you know, just take, just for the safe side for now, I'm just going to say take five minutes plus or minus the time. That is the midpoint between Fajr and Maghrib, uh, between sunrise and Maghrib, and then the time of Maghrib, which again is another problem with the tables that we have, right? But if you take proper astronomical sunset, uh, take three to five minutes for that, and you shouldn't pray any qaza salah on that time. Yeah, you shouldn't pray any qaza salah on that time. Let's just say for now, it's just much, much better and it'll make your life much, much simpler to do them together. <coughs> See, there's this thing about what is a suburb for the wujub, what is a suburb for the wujub of witr, right? What is the suburb for the wujub of witr? What is it that makes witr wajib? <coughs> so some fuqaha believes it's isha itself. So that's why you can't pray with her unless you've prayed Isha. Right? Yeah, so once you've prayed both, you still cannot pray that you still cannot pray that with her before Isha. So there are two possibilities in what you're saying. Maybe you made up a, made up a lot of Ishas you never did their withers. That's okay. You can make their withers now, that's not gonna be a problem. But if you made up a lot of withers and you didn't make up the Ishas that went before them, then that's a bit problematic. That's a bit problematic. <coughs> You really can't pray with her before Isha. Whether you do it in Allah or you do it in Qaza. So. Oh, okay, so, uh, That's something you should also ask the Mufti Nawal Rahman or somebody like that. Because off the top of my head, some, uh, what we call a jizzy, <coughs> something like that. I don't, I don't know if even the folks or the time these days to look it up. Okay, so, uh, since when, when you make up the Salat in which you read out loud, do you it's optional. It's optional. It's not. We have if they are, you can read out loud or you can read silently. Okay. So Both ways are optional. Then the other thing is, generally speaking, when you pray Nafu during the day, you're not. It's it's it's, or it's, it's, it's you're not supposed to read out loud when you when you recite in the Quran like in the PM. 
You mean mutlaq nafal, just like that? Yeah. I don't know anything right now to say that it's makruh to recite out loud. I think I've to ask him to know. Oh, mutlaq means just a regular, just plain old nafal. Not like kazar, or not, well, not kazar, not nafal, but just praying like I want to pray to nafal and then make du'a istakhara, I want to pray to nafal and make du'a al-hajjah. I'm going to pray to nafal for shukr to Allah. I'm going to pray to nafal. I'll accept my tawbah. I'm going to pray to nafal because I'm worried I want to take it. Just two extra, just purely extra salah. Yeah. I want to, or even those tahiyyat al-masjid, tahiyyat al-wudu, those are also nafal. Right. I guess those wouldn't be Muslim. Go ahead. Uh, well, we're in uh, Jamaat doing a salah you know, for some reason, you know, we end up uh, breaking what we do uh, while in Jamaat. What are we supposed to do? Leave the Jamaat? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if you break your wudu during the salah, then you should say salam in whichever position you are. It's better, technically speaking, you, I mean, it's better to, to, to exit your salah by saying a salam. So you should say your salams and leave that salah. You should know that when the Imam this is something a lot of people don't know. That the Imam is sutra for the followers. In other words, that you know that ruling that if somebody's praying something, you shouldn't walk in front of him. Right? Unless you put something in front of him, then you can walk in front. So that thing you put in front, that's called sutra. Right? So the Imam is the sutra for his followers in Jama'ah. So you can cut across that whole line, no problem. If they're praying in Jama'ah, the Imam standing here, you can walk across all of them. So if you're praying all the way there, you can say salams and walk across all of them. If they're in Jama'ah, right? And you can leave, and you can make wudu, and you can come back. Similarly, also, when you enter the masjid and you see a spot over there, I mean, don't do it actually because it causes fitna. People don't know. <laughs> they're going to get upset if they're walking in front of them. But, you know, if you have to, I mean, just know that anyway for yourself, that when the people are praying in Jamaah, <laughs> you, can, you can walk in front of them. It doesn't, it's not makru at all. Because the imam is there. So you should break your salah, you should go, you should make wudu. And then there's a very long discussion about what you would do if, if you made your within you came back in time. That the salah was still going on, that you can discuss with me privately sometimes. Because it's, it's quite complicated. Okay, you'll, you'll be next in Okay. I have to give the farm. So one, two, three, four. Keep track of your numbers. Huh? Yeah. yeah, same thing. Imam has to, there are two things you can do. Right? What you're normally supposed to do is you're supposed to, again, because people don't know these messiah was difficult to do, but you're supposed to make somebody behind you take over. So you're supposed to say salam, and then you're supposed to sort of pull somebody, and you're supposed to come up and take over the imam. But you know what I mean. Let's, somebody might not know that, and he's standing behind you, and you touch him, and he doesn't know what's going on. Everybody sees, they see you break, they start breaking. So, in a case like that, it might be better, which is the second option. It's not the preferred option, but if you think that people might not know what's going on, then what you do is you say salam, like I'm talking about, people will say salam after you. You have to tell them that I broke my wudu. Uh, I, I have to go and fetch my wudu. Somebody else can either lead you again, or you can wait for them to come back and I'll lead you again. But it's He will take over wherever you wherever you left off. Yeah. So in that case, it would be better you wouldn't say salam in your sajda. Well, yeah, you'd have to say salam in whatever point you broke. So he would have to. No, no. Well, 
Yeah. If you if if you don't want the others to follow, you don't you won't say it out loud. There are two things here. One is if right now we're in the track where he's going to make somebody be his knight. Somebody's going to be a deputy. Somebody's going to take over the imams from him. So you would say it on your own, or maybe maybe technically loud enough so that he could hear, right? But probably just on your own, then you wouldn't ask him to come. But very few people know that, know the rules of that. He might not know that he has to take over where you left off, right? Then there will be a gap. That you made the first sajda, and then but then you lost your wazoo. And then he took over, and he didn't know, so he just did standing, so there was no second sajda. Right? But you didn't have wazoo, so yours isn't multimer. And he didn't do it, he joined in, in he took over in Qiyam, so then he didn't do it. So nobody led the congregation <coughs> in the second sajda. And the congregation's law is based on the imam's law, but everybody didn't do the sajda. So because most people don't know unless you're really sure the person knows. I'm almost not sure of anybody. So I would, if it was me, I would just break in. And I would then tell the people. I've seen people, I've seen ulama do that. I've seen ulama do that. Yeah, okay. Praying salah while traveling and while in moving objects. Okay? Know that qiyam is farce. Qiyam means to be able to stand upright in an erect position that is far. It's one of the fara'in of salah. So you're not able to do that in a car, so you have to stop and pull over on a rest stop, a gas station, the side of the road, whatever it is, and you have to pray your salah. The second thing is the direction of the qibla, right? So you won't be able to face the qibla in a moving car, unless I mean, you know, you're driving to Mecca or something. Yeah, so because the qiyam is first. So the same thing in an airplane. Airplane... You know, something we do change for the time. I'll show you. The airplane actually, uh, Qiyam is first. So you're actually, if you're in the plane, and number one, you should try your best to schedule your domestic flight. Domestic flight. Domestic flight. <laughs> you should schedule your domestic flight at a time in which there are no prayer times. Because otherwise, you're going to have to pray on the plane. And these days, it's quite difficult to pray on the plane because you get a bit worried. And legitimately, they should get worried. You know, I mean, they should, no, they, they get worried because they don't know what it is that you're doing, what it is that you might be about to do, right? And it is perfectly permissible for them because they're a sovereign nation and they have the right to pass any law they want. And part of your unwritten or unspoken or part of it, it probably is written somewhere in your ticket that you're subject to all the carrier rules that are written there and these are subject to change and they can add any of them, any they want. So you actually have already pretty much agreed that if they make a policy that you can't brand the plane, you have to abide by it. And you know what? If you don't abide by it, what's going to happen? So, some of them, some of the airlines will have that policy that you can't pray on the plane. It, you know, you can't get up and actually stand and go in the gallery where they where they serve and stuff. So if they tell you that you cannot play on the plane, then what you would have to do is you'd have to pray in your seat, right? And then you wouldn't be doing qiyam and you wouldn't be facing the kaaba. So you'd pray in your seat, and then when you land, you'd have to make that prayer up. And if you're on a train, uh, you'd have to pray standing up facing the Qibla. And, and then I've, I've really traveled on train in America, so I don't know. But if for some reason, Amtrak or whoever it is uh, forbade you from praying, then the same thing would happen there. He was number one, right? Sue was number two. You forget your numbers. Okay, oh, sorry. you were four, but go ahead, because two and three forgot. Number three. Oh, okay, okay, three. Is it permissible for a husband and wife to pray as well as alone together? It's permissible to do on occasion. It's permissible to do. 
It's probably better to only on occasion not to make a regular habit of it because the right of the Jamaat is in the masjid. You really should be praying Jamaat. If you have the desire to make Jamaat, then Allah Ta'ala has created the masjid for that. Or barring that, then because we're in America, some musallas or some places that are temporary being used for Jamaat until that community can build a proper masjid. Uh, so it shouldn't be something a person does five times a day on a regular basis. If a person does do that, then there should be at least one row between him and his mahram women. Right? And the reason for that is so that you don't see them under your peripheral vision in any way when you pray. Hmm? The reason for that, keeping the one row gap, minimum one row gap between you and them, is so that you don't see them in your peripheral vision or you don't see them for some reason. The niyyah would be of imamat, and you make also you have with awareness of iktida uh, that you and that oh, there's a female follower. For a person who has so many prayers and kada, uh, I've been taught like for for for, for such a person, he should not be praying any nafal at all. Should be basically be worried about those prayers that he owes. So, the person has a habit to pray shirah. Now, instead of praying the Muslim shirah, people say, people call the Qadar of Yorah, 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 the it is? Okay, I'll do that. Okay. And similarly, like for istikhara, like regularly you would pray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll take istikhara, that's a better example. So, what. Let's just finish the first thing. One other thing I should mention in Qadar, sometimes, before we get to this question, sometimes, again, Shaitan is enough tricks us that, oh, you know, you have so much Qadar that you owe. So, you know, this person told you that you should read Quran or that you should make dusty of the Sikhar, you should make Zikr, you should make Raqqabah, you shouldn't do that. You have all these Qazas to do and they're wajib and farz on you. So you should know that you should, whenever you want to make up your prayers, right, you have to take time out of your life to find time to make up the prayers. So you shouldn't punish your deen for that. You missed those prayers. What did you do in that time that you were supposed to have been praying? You gave that time to the dunya. So when it's time for you to make up the prayers, you should take that time back again from the dunya. Don't think that, oh, well, I can't go to the Darsh because I have so many Qazas Salah to pray and that's wajib on me. So it's better that I just sit at home and pray my Qazas Salah. No. You took that time that you should have given to your Salah, you gave it to the dunya. So now when you have to make your Qazas, you take it right back from the dunya. Don't take it from your Zikr and your Talawa and your other Ibadat and your other Atma. Right? Second thing is that, yes, for that person who has Qazas for his life, he shouldn't, we'll get to it, that you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't pray Nafil in general. But every now and then if you feel like praying a nafil, right? Or if you want to uh, make the nafil for istikhara. For example, the sunnah of istikhara is to pray two rakat of nafil and then make a particular du'a. So that wouldn't really be fulfilled if you pray two rakat as a farz, a fajr, and then you made that du'a. That wouldn't be fulfilling the sunnah of istikhara. So you can on occasion pray nafil, but you shouldn't have a general habit that I pray ten nafil every day or something like that. So what you can do is you can pray your qaza at the time of ishraq, at the time of awabin. There's again a difference of opinion on this that when you get the reward of Ishraq and Awabin or not. 
So our teacher was of the position that you cannot make the niyat of awabin, but if you pray six extra rakats, and in that case extra means anything other than the fars, the three fars of Maghrib and the two sunnahs of Maghrib, if you pray six extra additional rakats, whether your niyat was of kaza or your niyat was of nafil, because you did it at the time of awabin, and the fazila mentioned that these are praying six additional rakats at, the ta- at that time after Maghrib, you will inshallah get the reward of praying awabin as well. But you can't make multiple niyas in that. You can't say, I'm making niyas to pray two rakat fars fajr, that's recent on me, and also two nafal of awabin. You can't do that. You just make one niyah, but if you prayed at that time of awabin, at the time of ishaq, at the time of duha or chask or whatever, you might also get the salam for that. So the same thing comes when you enter the masjid. Right? And that's actually most of that's for sure. And if you enter the masjid, uh, in a, in, let's say you walk in here, you make wudu. Then you enter the masjid and you pray two sunnahs of fajr, right? Well, that will count as the hiyatul masjid and it will also count as the hiyatul wudu because it just simply means hiyatul masjid just means that the first thing you do when you enter the masjid is that you pray. So it's not necessary to pray two nafal to hiyatul masjid and then two nafal to hiyatul wudu and then pray your sunnah. But again, in your niyyah, you're only going to make the niyyah that I'm making the effort to pray those sunnahs. It's not prohibited. In terms of heavy rain, that's a ruksa that the jamaat is mas on you. In other words, the ta'id of jamaat, the emphasis that's given to pray in jamaat, that emphasis is removed in cases of heavy rain, in cases of illness, in the case that you're traveling, for some reasons like that. But if you wouldn't classify that as a prohibition. It just means that uh, it's not as emphasized. You have dispensation, it's permissible for you to leave the jamaat because of heavy rain or heavy snow. Issues like that, then again, you take up with the mutawalli and the committee of the masjid. That I've noticed that there's this problem that when it snows and it rains, people bring wet shoes, and sometimes they're not careful and they place their wet shoes in the same place that I might place my feet or my socks. And if you know they stepped in a puddle where maybe a dog just happened to urine, there might be some adjustment. So we need to maybe replan the entrance and exit strategy of the masjid when people take their shoes off, when the carpets start, when they end. Other uh, ways to think about doing that. That would be the solution. The solution wouldn't be that, okay, I'm not going to come to the masjid now because maybe, uh, you know, my feet are going to get impaired. You as a community, or you, the, you, you, the, look, the masjid has rights on every member of its community. Don't leave everything to the mutawalli, right? The mutawalli is the focal point, right? But it's a whole team. He's like the quarterback, right? But you're all a team, and unless you support him, unless you're a good wide receiver, how can you blame him for not picking him with the throw touchdown passes? So it's not, uh, he's not 100%, and, and it's not like he's 100% responsible, and you're 0% and you're home free. Once you made that suggestion, and once you brought the issue before the committee, the board, then maybe we can say you're absolved of responsibility. But without bringing it up, uh, then you're just as responsible. It's a communal obligation. That he, mashallah, has taken the step to fulfill that kifaya of establishing the masjid, but just the fact that one person maybe took 
you know, the forefront in fulfilling that communal obligation, it doesn't change an obligation for being communal. Back all the way against the wall. The brother with the glasses and the long hair. <laughs> In the first salah, you should say the sunnah tasbih, subhanallah, be an Allah, three times, and if you have extra time, you can fit any number of odd times, preferably five, seven, nine, eleven, etc. In your nafil salah, you can make the on such if you wish. I don't know about du'a for something, but I don't know if that's something, but you can make du'a. You can make Muslim Arabic du'a, you can make your own du'a, so it's fine. But you still have to make the tasbih. You still have to say subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah, that's a good question in English too. I don't know. If, if within Nafasul, I don't know if you can make du'a in English in your salah. So look into it. That's another thing you probably have to ask somebody locally. Wait, but if you're saying that you can make your own du'a also, on du'a, speak yeah. Arabic. Yeah, Would then you're in a bind, then you have to confine yourself to the sunnah du'a. Unless, you, you may be right, maybe you can make du'a. I don't know. I don't know. I've never come across an issue whether you can make du'a in a language other than Arabic in the sense of Nafusullah. All I know is that you can make du'a in the sense of Nafusullah. In a scenario like in Jama'ah, um, like in Tarawih, it may happen where the Jama'ah may start and then an individual just decides to leave um, and there's an open gap or open space. Which I just can't walk up to it. A difference of opinion on this issue. Mm-hmm. And those are, you can't open that, right? Yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's normally it is better, it is preferred not to. And the, th- the theory is that sooner or later somebody will come in and he'll fill that gap, right? Uh, but then some scholars have noticed that because people don't do that, it might be permissible to take small steps. You see, the reason why scholars don't like that is because if you take it, then the person next to you, then it's like a domino effect. And so many people are taking so many steps. Right? So, uh, my personal practice is I don't... If, if for some reason those two rakats go in the gap, then they go. The sin will be on the person who left. You should have left early. You shouldn't have left right when the lines were formed. Right? I mean, that doesn't happen when the person leaves early. It happens when he leaves right at the, you know, he's sitting down. You think he's also getting up. You say takbir, and then all of a sudden he decides to get up and leave. So if he wanted to get up and leave, he shouldn't have waited for the takbir to do that. The takbir is a signal to join the salah, not to leave the salah. Right? So if he intended to leave the row, he should have broke ranks, broke the formation beforehand. So if there is any karahat, it would be on him. Yeah, yeah. When you do your individual salat, I th- and I've uh, I've heard people mention this that if they're like uh, doing your salat and then a child is uh, passing by or anyone who's like probably been noticed that you're doing the salat, you can actually use your hand to stop them. From you can, yeah. okay. Not stop, but it's an ishara. It's two isharas not to stop because if you view it as a stop, if it doesn't work, then you're going to go like this and that, fine. But it's an ishara. It's permissible to do that. You don't have to do that, by the way. Keep in mind, you don't have to do it. It is permissible if you want to. You can go like that. Okay, and so with the child, that's well, the child. That's why. That's why I said it's not to stop. It's just an shot. It's a sign. So when you know the child is not going to understand or recognize that sign, there's not really any point in doing that. 
That's why it's important to understand what it is. So now that we know that it's a sign, or it's a signal, right, we're trying to communicate something. So the child is beyond that, you know. Yeah, so there's not real much benefit. And the child is innocent, he's masum, so inshallah he won't get, uh, you know, yeah. And also, that this is not in Jamaat, by the way. And Because remember in the Jamaat, the Imam is there, such where people can walk in front of you. This is when you're praying individually. And when you're doing that also, when a person crosses in front of you, nothing happens to your salah. You're only doing that to save that person from the sin that he's getting from crossing in front of you. Right? right? So a child is masum, he doesn't have that sin, so there's no need to do that for a child even. And the thing to the, like, that if somebody had their cell phone uh, on and their call comes Yeah, you know, that... Are you supposed to, like, actually, you know, pick up the phone yeah, and it Yeah, that's a good question. There's no real hard, fast answer to that, because what's prohibited in salah is what we call amalikasir. Amalekas here, there's a whole long story behind that, but in the end, the way the Fuqah defined is if you engage in such an action, that if somebody outside some third party was to see you, and even this isn't definitive really, but some third party was to see you and think that you were doing something that's not part of Salah, you know, like some of these mothers of kids, I was telling your brother, you know, some Ajib, you know, that the, the things they do and the, the way they juggle their topi and, you know, I mean, in their Salah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So things like that, if somebody sees you're doing that, says, well, this isn't something of Salah, and that could break your Salah. And the thing is, and then another thing, if you can, with one, let's just watch, for example, what would not be Amalekas here? If you can go like this, that's fine. But if you have to go like this, <laughs> that's all. That's what I'm like to say. So flip clone is going to be difficult. If you have the non-flip clone and it's already in your belt and you just need to go like that, it's okay. One, think one hand, subtle movement, quick movement, rapid movement, it will be okay. It won't be able to say. But if it's a lot of that, digging in pockets and stuff, using both hands, taking it, opening it, looking at it to see which button is, that's too much. Yeah. And then, so that's why you should really, in fact, the imams probably have to add that to their standard spiel, straighten their low sets and line, shut off the mobile phones, you know? Yeah. 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 People come afterwards or people forget, you know. People think they put it on vibrator and, you know, um, it's difficult, you know. That happened to me right here once, I don't know if one or two of someone or two people who might have been here, you know. Uh, I just got, I just come back to America from Pakistan and I just got in a cell phone I wasn't used to it. And uh, even though I normally didn't bring, for some reason I brought it with me that day to Fajr. And oh, that person just was not giving up. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they weren't leaving a message, but they were just calling. Actually, they were calling from a different time zone, so they probably didn't realize. So, and I knew that it, it was this flip, it was this phone, and it was in a case. So for me to take it out, and I didn't, so I probably disturbed. You know, so afterwards I had to ask the forgiveness of all the people who were there. That's so this is what you should do. You know. But, and you should just hope that Allah Ta'ala gives them enough kushu and fuzu and rasulah that they can pray beyond that. Because we are people in America, people who will be praying gas stations and horns are blaring. On occasion, we have to do that. Uh, so, I, I mean, and somebody, it happens, you shouldn't get angry. You know, some people, I mean, I've seen people, you know, the second song is and they stand ramrod straight and they look and they point and they start getting upset. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't get angry like that. Your phone going off is affecting other people. It is affecting. It's affecting. So should you like save their salah and all still? No, no. You can't break your salah for anything like that. Yeah. It doesn't nullify their salah. If if you're doing something that was nullifying their salah, then yeah, it's better for you to nullify your own than to nullify theirs. 
but you're not doing anything that actually nullifies their sin. Right? And you're not really causing them harm. Yeah. In the floor in general or in the masjid? In general. Okay. If you fi- yeah, if you do find something in the masjid, uh, then you should, again, alert the administrators of the masjid and maybe they can take over that. Uh, and because, you know, a person normally, if he realizes he left something in the masjid, he knows that he should contact the administrators of the masjid and say, you know, I lost a spot or I left my cell phone or whatever it is. Uh, because the thing is that money, look at it this way, that money is always the property of someone. And by becoming lost, it doesn't leave his property. It's still his milkiyat, it's still part of his, his property. So there's these things in Arabic, one is called kabza and one is called milk. Kabza means he has possession of it. It's not his possession anymore, he lost it, it's lying around somewhere. But it's still his property, it's still his milkiyat. So that's why there are certain things you can do if you pick it up, you have to advertise it for a number of days, right? And there's a period of time expires, if the person collects it, he doesn't collect it. If he doesn't collect it, then what you can do is that that's the whole science. Rather than learning that whole science, just leave it where it is. That's the bottom line. Especially if it's just like a quarter or a penny or something like that. Yeah. So what are you supposed to do if I just uh, give it to some poor person if I was to give it? In the end, if he didn't collect it, you would give it and you would make the need that the sawab would go to him. Right. But yeah. like, if you found a quarter and you advertising it, that whoever no, that, lost yeah, you, lost well, you wouldn't pick it up on the corner. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. So that's why I said don't pick it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we just want to finish. Because the reality is that most people, even if they, you know, like if I go back to Elgin, I realize I dropped a quarter. I'm not going to come back here for the quarter. I mean, let's everything. I might come back the next day, right? But so people for those small amounts of money, although still we won't say that it's left their milk yet, but that they're really not concerned about leaving. So it doesn't really matter then. Don't worry about it. You know. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I was wondering I was wondering what if there was a ruling on like what's the ruling on like if you have to go to the bathroom really badly that you have to make it to your like jama. Like to go to the bathroom. You can miss the jamaat, you have to go to the bathroom because to pray when you have a stronger to go to the bathroom is makruh. And the reason that's makruh is because you're not going to be able to concentrate on the salat. Allah said in Quran, salat and the The whole purpose is time is to pray for my remembrance. For Allah wants all his remembrance. Right? So, uh, that's, that's clear cut Muslim fact. You should go to the bathroom first. Uh, you know, that's something else. The next time you should try to take care that you are given yourself sufficient time, that you have time to go to the bathroom and leave yourself in the room and still catch the jamaat. But if at some actual moment you're presented with that decision, you should go to the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question in terms of um, the Shafi, my doctor says, Shafi or Ripa, right? When Hanafi is not allowed to stand on the You should pray behind them. You should pray behind them, but then you can pray your own with her afterwards. You know, see, in Makkah and Medina, they do it differently. They don't pray that one. But here, uh, you should pray the two. 
behind them. You make me have nafil. And uh, don't pray the one. Because in the Hanafi Madhab, there is a hadith of Prophet Naha and Salat al Budaira. The Prophet prohibited against praying the incomplete or the deficient shalah, which means one rakah salah. So, because we take that and because we take it direct from hadith, so this is one of those instances when we, we, when we can't follow one another Madhab. Uh, you can pray the two behind them and make me have nafil, but don't pray the one, the one rakah. From what I remember, the harm they pay three. They pay two and one. You remember? When did you go? Depends where. You see, in harm things are a bit different uh, because basically that was. Let's put it this way. Technically, that would be the rule that you should pray the two for Hanafi, but you shouldn't pray the one unless there's some danger of fitna, right? If there's some danger of fitna, then you can go ahead and pray that extra one behind them. So in the haram, in the sense, fitna in the sense that people might think it's awkward that in such a, uh, a noble place you should. Uh, you know, there are some Hanafi, you know, there are, very, there are three very big Hanafi muftis of this, uh, one of them is still alive, of, of this century. One was Mufti Muhammad Ashik Allahi, who, alhamdulillah, was at his janaz in Medina Munawrah. He passed away in Ramadan, actually, in 2001. And the second was Mufti Rashid Ahmad Al-Yanvi passed away in Karachi about one or two years ago. And the third is Mufti Taki Usmani Sahib's older brother, Mufti Rafi Usmani. So, I directly asked Mufti Rafi Usmani this question in Medina. And I have friends who asked uh, Mufti Ashik Alai and Mufti Rashid Ahmad. All three of them gave different rulings. Mufti Ashik Alai said that you should pray behind them and with them in the Haramain and you don't have to make it up, it counts for you. Because you're doing iqtada of the imam, and as long as the imam's salah was correct according to his madhab, then your salah is also valid. So you should do iqtada, do no qada. No, no, I mean, you can just, no, in this case it's going to be for everywhere now. These are the three positions I'm presenting, all three before you. So the first position is you should pray behind them and you don't have to make it up on your own. The second position, on the other end of the spectrum, is as a mufti he said that you shouldn't pray behind them. You shouldn't join. Just sit there and do whatever you do your own thing. You shouldn't join them, and you should pray your own with them. And the middle position, which is a Mufti Rafi Usmani, he said that you should join, pray behind them, and then you should make up your own with it afterwards. So all three positions are there. Well, my question was asked in the context of the harm. In fact, I, I suspect, and so was Mufti Ashikalai because he lived in Medina. And, but, other than the small fitna thing, it really shouldn't be, the way they were answered, put it that way, suggests that it wasn't something to do with the harm. Because none of the, uh, none of them in their answer mentioned this type of thing, that because it's the harm, or, uh, I mean, certainly with Mufti Rashid and Lodianvi, then there's no issue, because he says you shouldn't do it, so there's no, for him that's not even an issue. Uh, I personally do Amal and Mufti Rafi Usmani's position. That I actually followed that. And then I would pray my own with it afterwards. Just to be on the safe side. Does the same position apply to Asr? No, 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 no. Didn't we mention this before yesterday? Or was it not for Asr? You can pray. There's a special thing. Because the Hanafis have a very strong position based on the Hadith. That there's no such thing as a one rakah salah. Uh, but as far as Asr goes, you can pray behind the Shafi. You can pray by any person, any Muslim, at any salah, at any time. 
As long as his salah is valid, your salah will be valid. So like in Haram, you pray Asr at the Shafi, Alhamdulillah, whatever you want to call it, it's fine, no problem. You don't have to make it up or anything. It 100% counts. There's a good chance maybe your witter behind them counts too, but we just don't know for sure. We just don't want to take the chance to be on the safe side and make up the witter. There are many different ways on the Sunnah of making istifar. One is a du'a called Sayyidul Istighfar. You can find it in the books if you can recite that du'a. That Paul Sassam has given many of its merits. Another way some of the Messiahs say is to recite some of the ayat of istighfar in the Quran and read some of the passages where Allah mentions His mercy. Another thing mentioned in this is what they call Salat al-Tawbah, which just means to pray two rakats nafil because you feel bad about some sin you did and after those nafil to make du'a to make tawbah to Allah to forgive you for your sins. There are many, there's nothing that you have to do, but there are many things that you can do. You can give sadaqah, right? You can give charity. <coughs> you can try to do any number of good deeds. You can do nafil fa- extra fast, right? Anything that you can do that you think that you need to offer, um, that you can just think that, well, if I do something bad, I should also try to do something good. But there's no specific one thing that you have to do this to get forgiven. There's nothing like that. Yeah, there's nothing specific and exclusive that you have to do to expect yourself from some sin. Separate from the hudud and the ta'zirah, but we don't live in a psalmic state. So don't bring out the whip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even that, even that, by the way, and that's still not, that doesn't qualify as tawbah. That's a whole discussion the Muhammadisin had, but and by and large, it doesn't qualify as tawbah. The person still has to make tawbah from that sin. Otherwise, I mean, you can have repeat offenders, right? Just like you have here, I mean, you have jail, right? person steals, he goes to jail, he comes out, he steals right again. So, I mean, fine, he did serve his time, he did get the punishment, but he didn't do toba from that act. So the same thing, you know, in spiritual sins, uh, even if we lived in that time or lived in a place like that, uh, you still have to make toba separately. Um, I, I see this a lot when people Does anybody know anything about that? I think Well, I know that some people say that if you don't shaitan, we'll pray there. And then one alam I know in South Africa, he said, well, if that's the case, people should leave their prayer rugs unfolded all over if we want shaitan sitting on the masala. Right? <laughs> so, but there is, there is something there. One of the small things on my list I never got around to asking. I probably would have had many opportunities I could have asked this, but I don't know. I, I never remember it when it comes time to ask. Sometimes when you sit in front of these big scholars, you just uh, you forget a lot of the things that you were thinking of asking them, and a lot of the things seem trivial, and then you only really ask them the one or two things that you really need to fix your own self. Um, but that is a point of intellectual curiosity. I would just say that although we don't know the reason, we shouldn't really dismiss it, because I see so many people doing it. You know, you even see some ulama and people like that doing it. Maybe there is some hikmah behind that. So we'll just say what we'll do, what we do in this, what we call this in sacred Arabic, tawakkuf, which means we will just hold back, we will refrain. You don't know either way, it's sort of under investigation. We won't say something that we necessarily have to do, we won't say something that you shouldn't do because we don't know the reason. It's something that we need to bring up before somebody and find out, you know, what's this thing that we see this practice. You know, possibly an internet search might actually generate an answer. Possible, ask your mom. Probably somebody would have, should have asked them this by now, right? Or if not, then you could ask. Right? 
There's this place called askingmom.com. Ask and see what they say. One, two, three, okay. Oh, okay. We're just going to go from the right and we're just going to go this way once. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. I think it's a battle of the wills between me and you, right? Who can last longest? It's like 40 of you against one me. <laughs> go ahead. They, what they literally call Arabic it's like the Salah it's like it's taking place of those two rakats it's not part of the Salah the Salah is those two rakats and that's why if you miss the khutbah and you come in and you join in the Salah that counts for your Jummah it's not like you have to make your Zohar up again yeah. all you have to do is catch him before he says Salam and then you get up and you would only pray two you'd have to make it up so that's all yeah, the one called Jama Kiki, one is called Jama Suri. Sur means uh, Surat, it's from the <coughs> appearance, I mean, appearance, the picture. Seemingly to combine this. Jamal Hakiki and Jamal Suri, and if you want more information on this, you can read the chapter in Fikul Imam by the other guy, French Sheikh Abdul Rahman bin Yusuf. What do you say about uh, practicing polygamy in a country where it's outlawed? <laughs> <laughs> are, are you married right now? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> I think let's try to practice monogamy first. <laughs> uh, polygamy is permitted, permissible in the Sharia. And you know, it's very funny that a lot of, you know, some of whatever hardcore scholars, what you want, they say that it's apologetics to say that it's only if you can treat your wife equally, but it's not apologetics. Uh, does that mean you have to love them equally because that's not humanly possible? But you literally do have to treat them equally in terms of the accommodations you give them, the clothing you give them, the money you give them. You have to treat them 100% equally. So most people in this day and age are unable to do that. I found two type of communities from two opposite ends of the spectrum who my travels on the most world can do it. And unfortunately, the Americans aren't one of them and neither are the Indopaks. One is the Saudis and one of the Somalis. The Saudis literally, when they marry more than one woman, they literally they make a house each floor is exactly the same. They literally, I have relatives who are Saudi. Actually, my, my mother's sister, she married a Saudi Arab, Makkali, right? So I have Saudi, you know, half Saudi first cousins or whatever. What were you? So they literally, you know, my aunt is his only wife, don't worry, but you get to know about Saudi culture when you meet that side of the family, right? So they literally make, like, let's say they have three wives, they build, they construct a three-story house. Every floor is exactly the same, down to the tile, down to the fitting, down to the fixture, everything, right? The um, amount of money they give the woman for her monthly expenses is exactly the same. The car, the driver, whatever, the number of servants, they get it exactly the same. Then over time, there are differences because that woman, now she has her money. It's up to her. She gets a red couch. The other one gets a blue couch. One might spend more on her clothes. One might spend more on this. So over time, differences will come then in the decoration of those three apartments. But he gave exactly the same thing to them. And then about the nights that they spent, they're very meticulous about spending the exact same number of nights as everyone else. So I'm saying the families do that now, that shows that sometimes you need a lot of money 
to be able to treat uh, numerous wives equally. But the Somali example is the other way. They live in one house, and they all have only one room each. Because they don't have, the, and by and large, I mean, as a whole, the Somali people don't have the type of money that as a whole the Saudi people do, right? So the way they do it, they live in a sort of extended sort of family type system. There's one small dwelling, right? And uh, and, and let's say there's three wives, so there'd be three rooms, each wife has one room, and the husband doesn't really have it, he just lives in those three rooms. But they're also very meticulous about giving the same amount of money, even though it's obviously much less, right, to each of those three wives, and about spending the same number of nights in those three. The majority of people who get married these days, that can they do it in a strange way. You know, some guy, he has a wife in Pakistan, he comes to America, he starts feeling lonely, he gets married, Right? But there's a total disparity with the way he's spending time and money with his wife over there and wife over here, right? So normally most cases are just gone right there. We don't have to enter this issue while it's not legal in the United States law, right? Most cases are just ended right there that they're not doing it properly this way. Then there's some other issues that cause problems. Is that, you know, by and large society... Uh, Muslim society today in America because your question is about an American, a country where it's not allowed. It's not just not allowed in this country, but it's against the social norms of the Muslims of this country. Right? So, the, what, what's the result of that? The result of that is the person ends up treating one of his wife unequally. One is like his official wife, the one he takes to gatherings, he takes to parties, whatever it is, right? And the other is his kind of hidden, unknown, the secret second wife that he has, right? And that's another issue, whether that's also part of the Sharia equality. Technically, it wouldn't be that you have to take, you know, I mean, you have to sort of go around in public with each of them equally. But it does affect the psyche of the woman. There's very much the second wife status. See, in Saudis, it's not like that. They're more like co-wives or something like that. In Somalis, it's the same way. In, in these type of cases, there's normally it's very clear who's the wife and who's the second wife. Who's the secondary status wife. So if you take orf, and, and some vokaha do say orf, which means practice or custom has a role in the sharia, well, if then the orf of that society, she's clearly second-level status, then he's not treating them equally. Isn't their standard living based on the way they lived prior to the nikah, though? Or can mm-hmm. they reset if you have more than one? Because if you, if you just marry one, one woman, then you're responsible for maintaining her lifestyle the way she was living prior to her nikah. But now you're saying... Say one was really well off and one was really well, you know, No, yeah, it's, not, it's not like that. Like you married, wife number one is rich, that's why you give her ten thousand a month. And wife number two was poor, that's why you give her a hundred a month. Because now they're your wife, they're you. The very fact that she married you, she's gone up in the social status because she's now your wife. So she is entitled to get that equal amount of money, uh, or you know, money or whatever it is—house, car, clothes, whatever—that you give the other one. How about the issue of respect? Meaning, legally, you can't. The society, other than the Muslim society, won't show the other. No, if in Muslim social norm, uh, she's not considered second class, and the legal oh, thing, yeah. the legal thing wouldn't matter. Yeah. Okay. The legal thing wouldn't be or it wouldn't fall into or. small steps and don't take any more, never take more than three steps in a row. Can you like realign the person next to you? No, 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 you can't realign. You can't do anything to a person next to you. 
many things that the ulama write about concentrating in this one. One thing is to, some of them are very simple, some of them are a bit more deep. Start with a simple one, is that you should look where it is sunnah to look in that salam. Each every uh, phase of your salam, if you're standing, if you're in ruku, you're in sajjah, you're at the house, you're sitting, right? There's a sunnah where your eyes are supposed to be focused on. So when you're standing, your eyes should be focused on that place where your forehead's going to touch and touch that. So you should be, your eyes should be looking at that. When you're in Raku, your eyes should be looking at the place in Raku. Right? Uh, when you're in Sadza, you should be looking down almost, not don't go cross-eyed, but looking down as much as you can sort of towards your nose. And when you're at Hayat, your hands should be looking at your lap, at sort of this front area of your lap. But some people find just that, just guarding their gaze, right, or making their themselves look uh, where it's similar to look in the Salah, that helps them concentrate in the Salah. Another thing is to do more and more zikr throughout the day. And we're moving to the more deeper stuff. Because Allah said in Quran, Akim Salat and the Dikri, that the purpose of prayer is not just to pray for Allah's remembrance. So unless you train your heart to be able to remember Allah, then you're going to be absent minded in the Salah. This is why, this is the very reason why Rashai teaches people to make zikr. But the more and more you are able to do zikr, if you make yourself a zakir, then if you're zakir in salah, then you'll be concentrated. We're not concentrating, it means that our hearts are absent. Our bodies are present, our tongues are present, our tongues are in fact reciting Qur'an, our tongues are doing zikr. But still we feel that we're absent, so it means when is it absent, our heart that's absent, right? Everything else, our entire body is doing, physically it's doing zikr in the sense that it's not eating, it's not sleeping, you can't respond to a salam, your tongue is reciting Qur'an. So it's your heart that's absent in salah. We have to spend some time training our heart to make the zikr of Allah So you should sit down for 10-15 minutes a day and practice the silent zikr of the heart where you imagine that your heart is simply remembering Allah Just like a person who doesn't know the fiqh of salah. So you can't just keep praying nawafin. You to sit and give separate, mustaqil, dedicated time to learning that fiqh in order to build the body of the salah. Just like that person who feels his absent mind in the salah he needs to give separate, specific, dedicated time to making zikr so that he can build the spirit of his soul. Another thing that is another thing that is helpful is that if you come to the masjid early, number one, if you pray in jamaat, that will automatically increase your concentration in salah. And then to increase your concentration even in the jamaat, is that you should come early to the masjid and sit for a couple of moments in zikr. And while you do that, then gradually you can disconnect yourself from all those things that you think about normally in salah. You disconnect yourself from your world. You start to focus on Allah. By the time in those two or three minutes, when it comes time to start the salah, you've already started this process of detaching yourself from the world. Uh, closing, uh, you cannot say that it's impermissible, but it's sunnah to keep the eyes open. So, yeah, same thing when you're leaning to keep the eyes open or the concentration thing. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's, be- it's better... It's better to keep your eyes open, but if for some reason, right, let's say your half is dying for some reason, let's just say, you did hips with your eyes closed all the time. I mean, you just have this thing that if your eyes are open, you can't remember, and you, if your eyes are closed, you feel that you can concentrate. So, in that case, you can pray with your eyes closed, but then you have to work on yourself. And that means it's a deficiency. Whenever we're not doing something according to someone's a deficiency that we need to fix. If we can fix it immediately, that's great. If we can't fix it immediately, then make a record of that as something we need to work on. So if a person feels that I just can't, I just can't 
if I start, if I open my eyes, I'm going to forget the Quran. I won't be able to lead the people. Then a person should go ahead, and then if he has to, you know, recite the Salah with his eyes closed, keep his eyes open. Then in every other state, right? Yeah. And then work on himself. Start praying Nafal at night, Hajjah at night. Pray his Sunnahs before and after. Recite long surahs in the Sunnahs and keep your eyes open. Start training yourself, practicing yourself, making yourself have the ability to recite with your eyes open. Going this way. Go ahead, go ahead, good before you get up. Go ahead. Oh, no. My question was about concentration. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Could you quickly talk about the Wajibat of Salat versus the Wajibat? If you can find them, you can find them. Isn't there, is that Dalim al Haq or something? Just a portion of the Quran that says,